detective. Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Healthcare Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. No words. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball, and tonight we have uh, sort of a bonus episode for you. This is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I say this every time, and we already have like 10 different podcasts underneath the Phantom Galaxy banner. We joke about that regularly. Uh, But what we're doing tonight is sort of a pilot idea for a podcast that uh, hopefully, if it goes well and if it's well-received, will actually become a a podcast in and of itself, it won't be under the Phantom Galaxy, is going to be dedicated to home media releases, specifically Blu-rays, 4Ks, DVDs, anything of that nature. Uh, and in film, from a from a artistic perspective, from a historical perspective, we will discuss all of that. But primarily, it's going to be through the lens of home collecting, of physical media. We will we'll, we'll probably throw some... Uh, discussions about things that are streaming and stuff like that out there but primarily we still cover that stuff over on phantom galaxy this is not going to be delegated to any one genre it's going to be open to movies in general and movies from uh from a perspective of both a collector and from a artistic historical perspective like i mentioned and in order to do that i'm going to bring in my two co-hosts uh my first co-host is dave dr shock becker the dvd infatuation probably better for this podcast Dave, DVD infatuation, Becker. Dave, how are you doing tonight? Um, I'm doing great, and uh, you know this this is uh, this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to this because I've been listening to other podcasts out there that have been dealing with physical media, and when you think about it, um, you know, with everything moving towards streaming and everything, uh, physical media. You know, it's almost like if Netflix had its way, physical media would go away completely, but it's not going to. It, it's just not. And uh, there are collectors out there. And um, this is this is going to be great. I'm, I'm really uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, to uh, to this episode and future episodes where we where we sort of delve into, um, you know, like you're saying, uh, DVD, Blu-ray and 4K. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I've been up and down that roller coaster of physical media versus cutting the cord versus not i've never been in favor of cutting the cord but you know years ago you know while i was a reviewer people were sending me screeners all the time and so i had i was constantly deluged with discs not not in there and not in a nice packaging but you know you still got all these discs so when that stuff was coming in i wasn't buying as many and then i kind of have gotten back into uh, my love for actually collecting And, and what's cool now is this number of years later you know 
we're about to talk about some boutique sort of, uh, you know, specialty providers that, that make movies or, or, or kind of resurrect movies that we haven't seen in a while in some cases and give them sort of deluxe treatments at the time that I was buying. Mostly there was a Criterion collection. And now since, you know, now I'm coming back to, we have Scream Factory and Arrow and Vinegar Syndrome and yeah. so on and so forth. So there's a lot out there. And again, like I say, I, what we're going to do though is if you're if you're a film lover and you don't really care as much about the collecting, I think this podcast will still be for you because we are going to delve into film history. Uh, and one of the ways I think physical media is is uh, vital is it helps preserve that film history in a very specific way. You know, I'm never going to stop going to the library, even though I still have a Kindle. And I'm never going to stop collecting DVDs and. Uh, and Blu-rays, as long as those sort of things exist, whatever the format is, if I can have it in a physical form and it's in my hand, there's something tactile uh, about that that I appreciate. So someone that I wanted to bring on the show who's also a big collector, we've traded we've traded a few discs back and forth already, uh, and, but who also brings with him that uh, historical eye and uh, eye for analysis of film is Trey Whetstone from Screaming Through the Ages. Trey, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Nathan, and I really appreciate uh, the invite on this. I feel like I'm a couple steps behind of you two in this regard, just uh, based on age and everything else. But um, yeah, I've been deep into collecting probably since I was in college, really, and haven't looked back. So I will always get the physical media stuff when it's available. Well, you know what, Trey, you, you, you've reached our level because I know you had a message the other day where you said, Hey, this just got delivered and my wife's not home. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always watching for who's going to get here first, the Amazon driver, or is my wife going to get home from work first? Because, yeah. because one is, okay, I can grab the package, uh, and, and sort of put, you know, incorporate into my collection. The other is, Oh, I think I'm going to have to hear, I'm going to have to hear something. <laughs> about another package yeah. showing up. Absolutely, it's scary. I think my wife really enjoyed the one the other day when she got home, and the and the Amazon person was using their chin to hold the packages <laughs> flush with their hands so they could get it to the door. And my and she's waiting for a package, and so she's like, "Oh!" And, and of course, every single one of them was mine. Right, <laughs> it didn't go over great, but um, and then when the vinegar syndrome packages come up, and like, why is there a yellow, you know? leg and high heels on the side of this box just hand it. Um, the future episodes will involve sort of running down everything uh, new that's coming out just from a perspective of we'll go through the release list and talk a little bit about that but we'll have specific reviews for films from our collection we'll, we'll, we'll pick topics we're also talking about going through a director series where we specifically cover individually some of those films and you know something that I've I've noted and I think uh, these guys will cup that as well you know you get these box sets and you get some of these larger things and they just sit there on your shelf and they look beautiful they look nice and you hardly mm -hmm. ever get a chance to go through them in any sort of comprehensive way so i know that some of us all have some of the same ones we'll be doing a little bit of that going forward where we take a, a look at some of the stuff that's in there and break down the films as well like i say this still will have uh an element of film analysis to it but it is always going to be through that that the view, and I think from the perspective, which is a kind of a unique perspective, I think, these days, because I don't think as many people think of it that way, uh, of the collector, of someone who's looking to see what's coming out next. And, hey, is there what's the difference between the last the Blu-ray release and the 4K that's coming out? I don't know about you guys, but I'm always trying to figure out, like, that's all I want to review. Tell me, is the upgrade worthwhile 
or yeah, am absolutely. I just am I just replicating something in my collection for 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 improvements that I might not even notice? Um, I, I mean, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I remember when I I had a huge a huge um, video collection VHS. And I had everything on VHS. And I remember when DVD came out, I said, you know what? I'm only going to upgrade to the ones that make sense. So my first two DVDs were The Mummy from 1999 and The Matrix <laughs> from 1999. Because nice. I figured, well, okay, these are like sort of special budget, effect. amazing movies. And to upgrade to DVD, it sort of makes sense. Well, that didn't last very long. I mean, you know, it, it's eventually DVD just took over. Um, and then when Blu-ray came around, it was the same way. Now I've been a little bit better with Blu-ray. I haven't quite taken everything from DVD and upgraded it to Blu-ray, but for me, I'm looking at the new movies coming out for 4k things that I haven't owned before getting them on 4k. Um, and that's how I'm approaching it. But, um, yeah, so, so DVD has become like the, it was for many years, it was the pinnacle for me. Until Blu-ray came out, what is it? I think I want to say 2010. It was around um, was, then. Might yeah, have been around yeah. the first time I got a Blu-ray. Is when I got a Blu-ray. I, okay. But I remember for... my wife kind of surprised me with it. I and I think it was probably even then, I probably a couple of years old because I don't think I ever had anything like the first year it came out. Wow. Yeah, I think I got mine first one in like 2011 or something. Yeah. Yeah, and it was so... for 2010 for me. And the very first Blu-ray I ever owned was the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nice. I picked that up. I said, yeah, this is one I want to get on Blu-ray. This is one I want to own. And now I think I own three or four different Blu-rays. <laughs> so just keep releasing it in different versions. I think we all have those movies where it's like we have a couple versions of them. They tend to be your favorite. And, yeah. I, you know, and you're right. The Obviously, the gulf between VHS and DVD was wide, right? Like mm-hmm. in terms of the of the upgrade. Oh, yeah. And then the and the and the golf between DVD and Blu-ray is pretty significant too. I think in yep. terms of picture quality and things like that. And then now I, you know, the golf between Blu-ray and 4K a little bit less. I think the and the, the issue with that is obviously the bigger like setup you can get, the more elaborate setup you can get, yes. the more that difference becomes uh, viable, becomes something to really really notice. I definitely notice a difference, but I agree with you. Uh, there's been a handful of movies I've upgraded that are just like, hey. These are some of my favorites. They're the go-tos. I'm always going to have them in whatever the most recent is. But I think I benefited from not collecting for such a long time over the past like five or six years in Blu-ray. So there's a ton of stuff I don't have them that, that I just skipped right from DVD to 4K. But right. you mentioned your first movies you ever got. Uh, it's so funny because my first, although it, with a couple of them, I got a couple at the same time. But the first movie I ever got on, on the last three formats was all the same movie. And DVD, the, one of the first two movies I bought was The Fifth Element. It was The Fifth Element and Lawrence of Arabia the same day. The first movie that my wife gave me when we got the Blu-ray was The Fifth Element. Last no. year when they got a 4K player, the first movie I bought, it was right around this time last year because the Amazon you know, uh, Prime Day, I bought The Fifth Element on Blu-ray, on, on 4K. So it's been the same movie over three formats. So I That's guess whenever great. we get to holographic you know, download it into your head, it'll be the fifth element. That, that's really <laughs> cool. For me, I think the first, that that's, might be the first uh, Luc Besson movie I ever bought was that. It, it was that and La Femme Nikita. I got yeah. them right around the same time. But I love the fifth element. Anyway, now we're, we're doing that very thing where we sort of wander off the reservation. <laughs> right, yeah, and exactly. I haven't even told everybody what we're talking about today. So we do have a little bit of a structure uh, and again, what we're doing, this is a bonus episode, is we're going to be talking tonight about Criterion 
movie releases, the Criterion Collection and films, uh, particularly whether it's DVDs or Blu-rays, and in some cases, they now release a few 4Ks, uh, films that we are recommending to someone who maybe, uh, you know, you can be someone who's not that familiar with the Criterion Collection and maybe someone who is... Uh, collected quite a few and are looking for a few new movies to add to your collection. Now, I think the obvious thing when, when, when someone encounters a Criterion collection, uh, they are a, they're a group of movies. And I think particularly back in the day, they had this almost like highfalutin feel to them as like, these are sort of the, the best of the best. That's, you know, uh, that these are movies with a sense of importance or there's something significant about them. And that's why they're added to this collection. And I think that, you know, in the beginning, uh, I don't know about you guys, but in college, you know, they were the films that were always like 30 or $40. So it was very rare that you were even going to get your hands on one of them. Uh, and if you did, you were pretty selective. But in my, uh, I think for myself and my roommates and, and uh, the, the, my friends in college, it was the Criterion Collection equaled the Samurai Collection. You could go and get those samurai films that really weren't available except in some really dingy VHS copies that you'd find propping up the back stool of like a blockbuster somewhere. And then suddenly here are the movies and they're they're being sold at places like Barnes and Noble and Borders and stuff like that. I think Borders has gone the way of the dinosaur, but Barnes and Nobles is for the for the time being still around, and right. it's been sort of traditional that they have been doing uh, every. I think they do it twice a year now. They do a Criterion sale where everything Criterion is half off, which is good because normally I think Barnes and Noble very rarely goes beyond the uh, the sort of retail price for the manufacturer the, select. Yeah. You know, exactly. suggested retail, yeah. Right. And uh, so the SRP in some of these things is often like forty nine, fifty nine dollars. Um, which is intense. <laughs> of course, right. when you cut that in half for most of them, I think the majority of, of standalone titles end up being about 20 bucks. Then you mm -hmm. have box sets that maybe housed uh, you know, three or four movies. They might be 50. And then you get some of these mega collections that are the, the kind of thing that, hey, if you ever get a chance to get one, you roll in there like you're picking up a like, uh, you know, a classic car, you know, uh, the, <laughs> on the counter. I'll have that one, please. <laughs> you know, you kind of stride into the place. The things you don't pick up very, very often. I'll have that one and ship it discreetly. <laughs> exactly. Please <laughs> cover that. Uh, that's why I want to get into the Criterion closet at some point. Yes. Well, I can yeah. Like just throw them into a bag and walk into the house. Well, and, and, uh, and so for anyone who's maybe not as familiar with the Criterion collection and, uh, I know Trey, you just sent me a, 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 a clip there, but can you uh, can you kind of tell everybody the if you want to give a quick blurb or rundown of what the Criterion Collection is for anybody who isn't uh, maybe in the know or isn't as familiar? Yeah, um, and I did send you a little blurb, but I'll just kind of go off on what it is first, and then I think something that maybe we uh, I wasn't definitely familiar of as it started back in 1984. Um, with laser discs and things like that. And you both were kind of aware of that, but the collection itself, Dave, I think you said grand illusion. Uh, is that, was that the first title? Fine. Number one, as far as DVD is concerned. Yep. Yeah. And I think that came out in 1999. Yep. And so it's just like this giant collection of films that are kind of, um, what's the word I want to use curated. And they're kind of taken from all over the world and you get a little bit of everything. You can get popular films like, Silence of the Lambs all the way down to the deepest of the obscure from France and Germany and all over the world. So it's really this great collection. I think they're up to well over a thousand at this point. They're, I think, 
I bought one the other day that was like 20 or 1045 or something like that. So Mm. they're getting up there, but it's just this nice curated collection of these very, a lot of cases like art films and older films and just films that maybe you would have never known of if not for this. And if you're not familiar with Criterion, but other labels, I mean, other smaller labels do this as well, right? With uh, like Vinegar Syndrome and stuff and just pick up these very obscure releases. The only difference is that's much more usually in like the schlock and campy <laughs> side. And this is more right. in the um, just has a sense of grandeur to it. So except for Spine 40, Spine 40 is sort of an anomaly. That's, uh, that's Armageddon by Michael Bay. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah, and they have that, too. And they, they do some new releases as well, right? I mean, we've... They, uh, they do some new releases. They do... And things also like like Robinson Crusoe on Mars and Equinox. Yeah. You know, so yeah, they, yeah. they get into a little bit of schlock themselves uh, from time to time. And I, that's one of the things I like about Criterion is that it does have this reputation of being like you're saying, Trey, it, it's, it's this, uh, and, and of course you, Nathan, there's this, this high end, you know, this is like the, um, th- this, this is where the, where the, the, the cinephiles would, would go to, um, uh, to, to sort of, uh, to, I guess, build their collection. This is the, the, the ones who you think of like the art house. That's mm-hmm. what you think of when you think of, um, uh, criterion is art house. But it's not. There's a lot more to it than that. And it's funny how it's just building and building from uh, from what it was originally. I mean, when I first got into it, it was uh, 2001, 2002, 2003. I was getting heavy into foreign films. And that's how I found the Criterion Collection. And a few of them I'm going to touch on tonight, um, you know, that I found around that time. But then one of what I consider one of the, the funniest movies from the 1960s, it's a mad, 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 mad world. They released that on Blu-ray of, of, of all things. So they, you know, they, they, they've sort of stretched out from, from that, from that art house, uh, uh, I guess, uh, reputation yeah, to and- incorporate a lot of different cinema. Yeah, and I was going to say, even like some of the more popular ones, like I mentioned Silence of the Lambs or mm-hmm. The Princess Bride or something like that, they're taking, yes, there's another release of that, but they are pretty much, I would say the only company that even gets close to them is maybe Arrow or Scream Factory as far as mm-hmm. special features and the restorations they do to the discs. So even if you do have Silence of the Lambs on Blu-ray, maybe it's better to have it on Blu-ray on the Criterion Collection. It always is because of the special features. Yeah, and it's a funny thing because at, you're, I think you're absolutely right, Dave. Like I mentioned, uh, my joke about Armageddon is, for one thing, that was spine 44. And, it, you know, you feel like someone must have cut a deal with them because you look at the first 40 titles. I mean, Arma, that that's only a year or two probably after Armageddon even releases in general. And everything right. is like Oliver Twist, Alphaville, Andre Rublev, Tokyo Drifter. It goes Tokyo Drifter, Armageddon, and Henry V. <laughs> so, just to give you give you a feel, Time Bandits is too above it. So, but wow. since then, I think you're right. That first off, I think that a lot of the other boutique companies like Vinegar Syndrome and particularly Arrow. I mean, I think they're taking their cues from Criterion. You know, Criterion when it, it went from it no longer needed to be necessarily a prestige film. But they really demonstrated that they were about the love of film. So after you know, after a few years of doing DVDs, particularly with the Blu-ray, suddenly now we're getting uh, 
specific covers made for the films, right? Like now we're getting sometimes specifically commissioned art for the covers of these new releases. And even, I mean, some of the elaborate box sets. I mean, I got a box set the other day that had, I sent pictures to you guys. It has a pop-up book in the front of it. <laughs> Literally images that pop up like a children's pop-up book. I mean, they do some great stuff with the packaging. Sometimes it's befuddling. And sometimes you just wish they put it in a plastic case, right? right. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think that, what they have done is they have if they they've moved past the idea of okay it's about hired and it's about giving you a quality sort of premium experience with the film when it is put into this package and that usually involves giving it the cleanest and most beautiful transfer they can find and pulling all kinds of special uh, uh, materials and special features and lots of times bringing in people to create you know new special features and mm -hmm. so i don't think criterion is in the game alone anymore i think it's still uh, it's still sort of uh i think it still does have that sort of it's the grandfather and it still has that prestigious you know uh arrows kind of like you know they're the cool kid vinegar syndrome's like the cd punk on the block you know <laughs> and then they even get into mondo macabro yeah, yeah, right, right. Mondo well, Macabre, right. That's the one you don't you don't let that one around your daughters. <laughs> Please, but you're right, Nathan. Yeah. It was Criterion that influenced them. I mean, they they with the special features they do. I mean, it was the Criterion collection that sort of uh, yeah. set the bar for all of them. And even if they're not, you know, even if you know you, you're saying, okay, well, we have, um, uh, you know, Grand Illusion, Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion. Which uh, Woody Allen is, is cited as I think his all-time favorite film, or one of his all-time favorite films. I'm pretty sure he says it's all-time favorite. And then you know, with Vinegar Syndrome, you get things like Punk Vacation. They're still treating the movies the same way. They're giving them the same respect. They're giving them the same the, the same treatment with with the commentaries and with this with the. Um, uh, you know, featurettes and everything. You're getting that on both of these. And I think that's, that's, I think that's great. And I, I do, every time I see something from Vinegar Syndrome or from one of these other labels, I say, wow, I, I'm almost sure that the, the Criterion Collection is what inspired that. Yeah, it takes, it's taking a love of film and turning it into a love, like that love being a practical application of restoration. Yep. And it's, it's people who saw these films growing up and then, you know, they get to do something about them. It just happens that, hey, maybe I grew up and I saw a movie like uh, City Lights or something like that. I'm not, not that. I'm not that old. Or the, let's say The Last <laughs> Temptation of Christ. As a kid, I probably wasn't watching The Last Temptation of Christ. But then maybe another kid grew up and watched The Ice Cream Man. Figured that needed also to, to have a, a deluxe release. But right. uh, I think our point is, uh, you know, the winner here are film lovers because we see everything getting sort of the treatment these days if you don't see a movie getting treatment you can all certainly reach out to somebody find somebody out in the field that will uh, that that will lend uh, you can lend their ear and you can tell them about it and then sometimes you know get those things underway i mean but with criterion i think that you know they've managed to keep that sort of sense of you know it, importance of, of sort of there's a certain mystique right to it uh, they they're they're so expensive most of the year there's just one sale and you kind of a film lover kind of set your calendar that's what's like, okay i need a few bucks i need i need to hoard a couple of gift cards <laughs> to 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 keep in tow when these come on sale i will say that probably in the last couple of years i noticed that amazon has sometimes kept the prices at about half off for a lot of the titles they not have, all of them. For, a, for a lot but, of them yeah. yeah and that's great 
uh, what we're about to do is each of us have picked five titles that we're throwing out there that are, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I didn't pick my top favorite criteria movies. But what I No, did I didn't either. And I think it's yeah. six, isn't it? Oh, six. Thank you. Yeah. I <laughs> Get with the program. This is your, this is your circus. Well, yes. Six movies. We each picked six titles. It was originally five. We, re- we each picked six titles. And what we're doing is kind of going through and, and we're not going to get in deep into the plots or anything like that. We're going to talk about why we think that release, much like Dave's talking about the Criterion Collection, why we think, or Criterion Closet, why we think it's a movie that's worth getting, why it's worth your time amongst all these other titles. And I I think I uh, was, was talking with these guys. I said, hey, you know, there are some titles, and I'll probably run through some of them a little bit later here, that are the obvious no-brainers. You know, like, okay, you own no Criterion Collection movies? Maybe you do start with, you know, Seven Samurai or Night of the Hunter or Eight and a Half or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Movies that, in my mind, you can't possibly go wrong with, you know, it, Everyone has different tastes, but, you know, you're in for an experience for sure. What I try to do here was balance that between people who maybe don't know a lot about the Criterion Collection, but are looking to find a good movie, and people who are maybe at that level where it's like, hey, I've I've got most of the stuff. What's a little deeper? What do you have that's a little bit further out? And uh, right. I specialize in further out, so i got kind of a couple on here, I think, <laughs> that, uh, that you may not have uh, come across before. But uh, before we do that... Uh, I did want to talk a little bit about what our first criteria movies were. You know, the, the first purchases, as far as we're concerned, uh, what movie that was. And Trey, what was your first, uh, if you can remember, the first criteria movie you ended up uh, buying, whether it was on DVD or Blu-ray? Yeah, it was um, actually Cat People, the original um, from Val Luton. So that's always been one of my favorites. And I do remember getting that one. Now, I do... I think the first couple I bought that one in Kronos, I think were the first two. And I do only Ooh. have those on DVD um, just due to budgetary reasons at the right, time. Right. But yeah, those were definitely my first two. That's very cool. I remember being, I was already kind of collecting criterion and I remember being so excited when the cat people came out uh, for two reasons. One, the, the release had been synced up in such a way. It actually was released during the criterion sale. <laughs> so you could get it half mm. off. And then, I, like Trey, Trey uh, and everyone uh, who listens to Screaming Through the Ages, I was on there with Trey talking about both versions of the Cat People. And Cat People is one of my all-time favorite horror films. So, yeah, mm, definitely. Great. Strangely, I still don't have Kronos. I have the other Guillermo del Toro movies, but I, I love Kronos. I just, you know, it's one that for a reason I haven't picked up yet. So I need to maybe put that on the list for this time if I can sneak another disc past uh, <laughs> the gatekeepers here at Casa de Bartleball. Uh, Dave, how about you? All right. Well, my first one goes back all the way to it's two days before my 32nd birthday, which would have been uh, October 11th, 2001. And I know this because I have my DVD profiler here where I built everything in. And it was Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. That was the first Criterion that I ever purchased. And I don't even know if that's part of the Criterion. I know that years later it was released on Blu-ray by another company. Yeah, and it was so, a pretty pretty murky coffee. It wasn't great. I it wasn't great. No, I it have. was it was not as good. Yeah, I, it was not as good. But this time, Bandits has an amazing commentary by Terry Gilliam on it, which I love. I remember watch I watched the movie and then I watched it back again with with the commentary. Um, this is a film I go way back with. I saw this in the theater in '81 when it when it first came out, and I was a big fan of it then. I saw it twice, actually, in the theater. 
Um, I talk about that in my most recent DVD infatuation episode, as a matter of fact. Um, but uh, so this was the very first Criterion collection uh, that I bought, and it was followed up uh, six days later with uh, Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa. <laughs> That's an interesting dichotomy of choices there. <laughs> Both are great films. I love Time Bandits, one of my all-time favorite oh, fantasy great. films. And Gilliam is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. So Yeah. Um, and and Criterion has done a great job with all of his titles. And I they, they have over the years. I mean, even yeah. the ones like uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which has not been well received by uh, by all of Gilliam's fans that's, that's but true, I think Terry yeah. Gilliam himself said I either wanted to be seen as the greatest movie ever made or the the most uh, or the awfulest the the worst movie ever made I think he achieved that I think he did yeah I kind of probably <laughs> fall somewhere in the middle depends on the day you ask me um it was definitely jarring as a big Gilliam fan who he makes very few movies so to have that movie come out and be like whoa this might be too Gilliam even for me but uh, that's how that was my feeling with Tideland a few years later I was like okay I think he broke he broke me uh but uh Fisher King's got a great release too um nice uh, uh, Criterion but uh, for me, it was probably about a year or two after you, David, 2001. I think I don't have it written down, but it was probably 2000 to 2003, probably 2003, safe to say. I It was uh, Jean Cocteau's Bella Labatt, Beauty and the Beast. And they had oh, just wow. recently released it back to, to theaters. Uh, there was, it was playing at a theater downtown near Baltimore. I had seen it in a film class when I was going to college and it was like a VHS where the literally the, that copy of the film, the subtitles that they had put on the film uh, were actually had, were like crumbling off. And so the, the video copy that they had made it from, you had, you had to kind of guess at what some of the words were because you had deteriorated looking subtitles. I mean, that was the quality of some of the prints of these films, you know, uh, when they were on VHS, they were not this high, pristine quality I think we're used to so when Criterion takes the film not only do they clean all that up and give it some beautiful new uh you know captions and everything like that they also uh get a Philip Glass score that's that's composed for the film nice. so Bella Labatt has the original score and it has a Philip Glass score that's very haunting that kind of adds something to it uh Philip Glass did the same thing for Dracula if you remember around the same time Dracula uh the 1931 film had a mm -hmm. glass score that accompanies it. So same thing here, but Bella Labette's a really cool movie. It is, it is essentially just another retelling of beauty and the beast. And although I do love the Disney version, I think this is the quintessential, like this is the telling of beauty and beast. You want to see. There is a lot of imagination in that film. There you is. You know, There's with the hand sticking out of the wall. Right. The, like in the, we know in the classic cartoon that, you know, we have talking teapots and stuff like this, but here it's like the servants have been literally absorbed into the castle so that right. their arms are the candelabras and their heads are on the backs of the chairs. It's very creepy. It's very kind of freaky. And yeah. uh, and even even um, Jean Marais as the beast, you know, he's sort of uh, he, he's not always friendly. He's sort of. Um, creepy and and fear he can be yeah. because you know and there's there's scenes there's one scene that always stuck with me and it's it's you know you're sort of accepting him that okay this guy has been cursed and this is what happened to him but then something happens a creature runs by and his ears go up <laughs> yes yes you know and you're like wow he is still a creature he's still a beast you know and and it, I, I thought that was so cool that little bit of detail 
that Cocteau threw into that movie, that just sort of, I, I, and I have this on, I have this version on Criterion as well on DVD and, and it just sort of, uh, it blew me away. Just that little detail that he put of the, of the beast's ears going up when something ran by. And I think the cool thing with the Criterion is when they do these, when they clean these films up, sometimes it's like seeing them again for the first time. Like, yep. I know when I saw, and I have this one now on Blu-ray because it was one of those movies like, okay, I, I feel the upgrade. But both DVD and Blu-ray, I think are really, for all sake of the special features, are identical. And the you're right about that, that he's fearsome and they have these little bits that remind us he's a creature, yet towards the end of the film, what's very different, you know, in the Disney films, I don't think it's a big spoiler to say that Beauty and the Beast usually ends with the Beast sort of being redeemed and returning to a human form. In that film, uh, Marier doesn't just play the Beast, he also plays the Gaston character, right? The sort of, you right. know, dangerous cad that ends up being the villain. And so because they're all the same actor at the very end of the film, when the beast does his transformation, but at this point you're now kind of, you know, he's become a little more lovable. You care about him. When he finally turns into the prince, instead of it being the sort of big relief for her, he looks like Gaston and you're left with her. She's left with this. Now this person in front of her who looks like the bad guy. <laughs> and I just thought <laughs> what a genius way to add one last little sense of ominousness yeah. to a film that otherwise should be a perfectly happy ending. But uh, <laughs> that's that's talking about a movie that's, that's not even on a list. But I think the point is, as you can tell just hearing us talk about, there's lots of great films. And I want to say this up front, that you are going to hear some movies you might think, wow, that doesn't sound like it's my thing. I think what's great about the Criterion Collection is this is almost like, it's like film school in a box. Every single movie is. And uh, if you want to kind of delve fully into a film, most of these releases have so many different special features, so many different things to look at. It's not just the experience of seeing the movie restored, which is great. You, if you want to sort of, you can, you can walk away from a criterion release feeling like you kind of really know a movie sometimes in a sense, you know, you've got lots of different viewpoints on it, things like that. And I think that's, what's cool. It, it helps you gain an appreciation for some of these films, even if you don't necessarily love every single one of them. I have, I own Criterion movies that I don't necessarily love, I like, but uh, it's usually the release itself is special enough that it, it, it makes the film worthwhile. And so I would say if you haven't watched any of these movies, you're just unsure, give some of them a shot because I think because of time and because of reverence, these movies do become kind of lofty. They become overwhelming. But at some point, most of these films... When, whether it was upon their initial release or some other time, were entertainment or were enlightening to somebody and were treated the same way as any other film. So some of these movies are much more accessible than you think they are. Um, I was happy to see the Criterion this past uh, fall released uh, the Bruce Lee collection, you know, uh, and, and, and Jackie Chan films. They police go along, Story, yeah. The police, police Story film. Police Story yeah. 1 and 2. And then with the Bruce Lee, it's Enter the Dragon and all of his films together in one collection. And and, and cleaned up. I mean, the, 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 the prints look amazing. And that kind of thing, I think, goes a long way to showing that Criterion cares about movies in general. Not just something in French that lasts for seven hours. But there are right. a few of those right. out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, seven may be on the, on, the, on the short side for some of those movies. But... <laughs> anyway, let's go ahead. What we're going to do now is uh, get down and talk about individual releases. We're going to go do f uh, six each. Almost said five again, guys. Uh, we're going to do six <laughs> each, and we'll go ahead. Trey, I'll let you start with your. Uh, and we didn't. For me, they're not in any particular order. There's just six six movies that we think if you're if you're looking to pick something up at the sale, these are six. These are ultimately 
uh, what, 18 movies <laughs> that uh, that would make uh, a good purchase, I think. So, Trey, what's your first movie? Yeah, and I'll preface this really quickly by saying, um, you know, my selection, I'm only going with ones that I have. Um, so my collection is a little smaller than your guys's. So mine might be a little more, you know, more of the popular film at the Oscar versus the, the best international picture that you two would be choosing from. But um, yeah, I pick, tried to pick ones that were um, important to me for different reasons. And I'll try to start at the least obscure and get a little more obscure as I go in. Uh, my first one is Pan's Labyrinth by Del Toro. And Pan's Labyrinth was a very um, important movie for me, especially, you know, I watched this back, what was that, 2006 or seven when it finally came out. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was, I, th- I want to say it was either 2005 or six. I think 2006. What happened is it was released at like Christmas time. So it's one of those deals. Yeah. Where- Came out in 2006. Most people probably got it into their theaters in January of 2007. Yeah, yeah I, was I, I think was so. Yeah. But um, with Pan's Labyrinth, that was when I was getting into what I would say, getting away from more of popcorn cinema and getting into real movies. I remember around the same time, I think I rented in the same night, this and Apocalyptico. And those were just two, you know, foreign language films wow. that I really hadn't delved into before. And Pan's Labyrinth is just this kind of beautiful, macabre masterpiece, I would say. It's just, it's a movie that is fantastical and has all these fantasy elements, but at the same time, the monsters and the creatures aren't the scariest part of the movie. And I think when you can portray that in a film without getting too preachy, it's just, it's just fantastic. So, um, and this one, I was debating on recently, I think I talked to you, Nathan, about whether to get the 4k that was released um, that wasn't criterion or just get the standard blu-ray by criterion and the standard blu-ray by criterion one out for me. So that's my first choice. Very cool. And I think it's awesome uh, that we followed up talking about Jean Cocteau's Bella Labette with pan's labyrinth, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of crossover one in the level of imagination that del Toro displays and putting this world together and then two, in the way it's laid out where there's dark fairy tale elements, just as you begin to get comfortable with something, something over here is a little more sinister. This is not a, I think it's fair to say it's not a kid's film in, in any way. And it's um, not. And I think what I love about that film is that the real world is ultimately more frightening than the yes. fantasy world. And there are some terrifying things in that fantasy world. Oh, yes, the yeah. real-world portions yeah. are why I won't show it to my kids just yet, because... Yeah, exactly. it, it, what's going sinister. on in this girl's life, you know, outside of these fantastical elements, is much more disturbing than what she's experiencing, um, you know, with uh, in this fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And uh, what's and this is part of it, kind of uh, a un, an informal trilogy that sort of deals... Del Toro has these three films that, that have a sort of, um, I guess, a thematic through line, if not, you know, they're they're not narratively sequels to each other. But with Kronos, which was his first film, and then you have The Devil's Backbone, mm-hmm. both The Devil's Backbone and uh, this film kind of deal with the Spanish Civil War. And mm-hmm. um, it, this Criterion Blu-ray is beautiful. And you're right, like when I... Uh, Trey, when I was looking into getting it, I was like, oh, well, there's a 4K out here. But from everything that I've heard, 
the a the transfer on this disc looks better than the, the 4k that's out there because mm-hmm. i think we are getting a couple cases where people are just kind of slapping 4k you know yeah. it's not a it's not properly done and so right. what happens is a lot of these really painstakingly done blu-ray transfers the same thing i from what i understand is true of silence of the lambs people tell me and i, I just recently picked it up uh that the criterion silence of the lambs was the way to go um and not just for the the bevy of special features there's a lot of great features though on pan's labyrinth it did include of course del toro has such a great love of fantasy talking about things and, and yep. delving into they uh, from the from the Spanish perspective, uh, and, and Gil, Del Toro's growing up um, uh, in his Mexican heritage, everything the the way he perceives uh, fantasy and the and the way those fantasy worlds lay out, and how they correspond to what's happening. And a movie that he was deeply inspired by that I never even heard of until after I saw Pan's Labyrinth and heard Del Toro talk about it, was a movie called The Spirit of the Beehive. Uh, by Victor Urisi, who's uh, which is a really amazing film that's on the Criterion Collection. It is in a DVD format; it has not been upgraded to any other. But I highly recommend it, and it's a movie. I guess we can, I guess we can tease Dave that will we will be reviewing it as part of the next uh, the next six pack, yeah. the next DVD infatuation six pack. Yes. So I'm looking very much forward to hearing what you think about that one. But uh, okay. I would I throw that in as one of my. Uh, seventh selection, right? <laughs> if you can find Spirit of the Beehive on DVD, highly worth it. Pan's Labyrinth is a great uh, choice uh, to write. And th- that's a case. Those three movies have really awesome cover art that was made specifically for these releases. Yes. Uh, yeah, really, really cool, almost Mike Mignola looking sort of, which who, who did Hellboy, which of course Del Toro mm-hmm. also directed. The, the art has that kind of ambiance to it um, uh, for that one and Devil's Backbone as well. So Dave, how about your first uh, movie? All right. Well, my first movie, um, and this is uh, like Trey, I stayed with ones that I that I do own. Um, and this was spine number 98. It is uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's Laventura. Uh, this movie had a bit of a, a, a well, it, I, it didn't get off to a great start. It premiered at the 1960 Cannes Film Festival. And uh, the first screening uh, Monica Vitti, who's the star, and Antonioni were in the audience. Um, people were, you know, it was a very serious film, but people were laughing. You know, they were just sort of laughing throughout the movie. And then when it got slow or nothing happened, they started to boo. Uh, to the point that Antonioni and Vitti had to sort of flee the theater. Vitti was in tears, you know, oh, over no. the reaction of this movie. The next day, filmmakers... Uh, you know, uh, Antonioni was sent a list of signatures from other filmmakers and writers who declared that Laventura was the best movie screened at Cannes that year. After a second screening, it won the jury prize and went on to just become a classic. For me, this movie is, um, you know, it's 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 a it's a longer film. When I got this on on the you know Spy ninety eight, it's a DVD. It's a two disc set. For, for this and it has some a lot of special features on it and I, I I enjoy those special features but for me it's really about the film and it just sort of takes a look at boredom in the upper class um, the whole idea is that uh, this this um, this group of friends they go to this island and one of them uh, I want to say Anna is her name disappears played by uh, I want to say Leah Masari I think is the actress who played her just disappears and um, she's uh, she's dating 
uh, Claudio uh, or Sandro, played by Gabriel Frazzetti, and her good friend is Claudia, played by Monica Vitti. Uh, but yeah, Anna, Leo uh, Massari, uh, she just disappears. So the rest of the movie, they're looking for her. They're trying to find her. But then as the movie progresses, they stop looking for her. Sandro, play, uh, you know, Frazzetti's character, suddenly makes a pass at Claudia. And then the two of them are together. And Claudia is suddenly thinking, geez, I don't know that I want Anna to be found. But what happened to her? Did she? Did something happen to her on the island? There's a scene where you see a boat speeding off. Just randomly see a boat speeding off. And I was like, gee, is she on that boat? Because the movie is sort of building up at the beginning that she might be a little bit bored with everything going on. And she was looking for a way out. But that's what all of this movie is. It's about the, the upper class, the boredom of the upper class. And how they just, they don't know what to do with themselves is really what this movie is about. And, and I love it. It was filmed all throughout Italy. Um, and I just think it has, uh, for me, it, it, it's probably my favorite Antonioni film. And I know he's done a lot of great stuff like uh, La Clisse and, and Red Desert. But I think this is, gonna, is always going to be my favorite Antonioni film. Yeah, I, I agree. It took me a little bit, I think, to get into the... Well, Antonioni in general takes a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. I, to, I Red remember, Desert was one. It took me a little bit of time to warm up. Red to. Desert's even a little further out, right? Like, I think I think uh, uh, in the same film class I mentioned where they showed us Bella Labatt, he also showed us Blow Up, and everyone was like, what? <laughs> you know? Uh, That's another very bizarre one. <laughs> but yeah, Blow Up... I think Leventer is a little bit more accessible than Blow Up, but what mm -hmm. I... There's... He makes interesting movies because he he puts he creates a mystery at the heart of the film with mm -hmm. no real the, the point is not to solve the mystery it's it's what the mystery does to everybody else uh, who encounters it right it's it's right. it's what happens in their lives and what it brings out of them he's not interested in in a who done it and figuring out where somebody went or what has happened per se, you may find that out. By the time you find it out, you may not care. And so right. you may care about the totally different set of things. But he's and, and the characters themselves don't care anymore. Right, right. But I think yeah. he takes you on this sort of journey that's very fascinating. And Antonioni is one of those few directors, I think, where the journey is the is also the destination, in a sense. Yeah. Like, it's I, very rarely you get yep. one and the other, but he he's doing everything he wants to do in his movie while he's taking you on this sort of voyage. Right. And that's a that's a great movie. And I haven't really, you know, I, I don't think I own it. I need to get it. And uh, this would be the way to get it. But yeah, that's one I think you're definitely you, you're you getting that one for the film. I, I could hear 20 people try to unpack that movie and I might not, still might not know exactly what was going on. Yeah, that, it's one of those type of movies. It really is. Yep. And I'll say uh, I know we went back and forth in the messages before this. Please don't uh, take my, my silence as disinterest. It's just I don't think I've seen a lot of these films that yeah. you guys have picked tonight. Right. So I am busy listening and trying to get a feel for these films and taking notes as we go along. So, cool. yeah, and I think we all have we probably all have at least one or two here that we haven't uh, that we maybe haven't encountered before. Right. And that's got the fun, I think, of doing this podcast in general is and that's one of the fun things of shooting messages back and forth with Trey yourself and with with Dave is finding uh Movies I just haven't seen before. Whether whether that movie is The Treasure of the Four Crowns in 3D <laughs> or it's Amityville 1992, you know, it's all uh, it's all cool. Um, so my the first movie I want to mention is you know I, I think I mentioned earlier that early on it felt like Criterion was 
the samurai collection, right? Because mm -hmm. it was moved. Those were the films we were really kind of interested in. I hadn't seen a ton of them except what I could find maybe at Blockbuster. And so I was watching copies of Ran and Seven Samurai that weren't necessarily the greatest copies out there of the Kurosawa films. And uh, then over time you realize, oh, there's other directors that were making films at the same time period that were also very interesting. And uh, I wanted to, I you know, I wanted to bring, uh, find a movie that encapsulates some of that. Uh, I also wanted to find a film that sort of had a uh, visually speaking was something that could really pop and 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 be a really great visual experience. And then I also wanted to have a horror movie on the list. I'm like, well, how do I? Is there any way to knock all three of those samurai style film and a horror film and something that's just visually? you know, just a, a visual feast. And I, and a movie instantly came to mind. This was probably in the, in the top five or not top five, but the first five criterions I ever got uh, shortly after Bella Labette and probably after ran, uh, I, I picked up Quidon. Quidon is a 1960 film. This is spine number 90. Uh, it's in DVD and it's in Blu-ray. And an interesting thing that I learned, uh, let me, let me talk about what the film is and I'll, I'll, I'll mention why this is one of the few cases where, there is a distinctive difference between the DVD and the Blu-ray. Uh, this is from Masaki Kobayashi. And Kobayashi is a filmmaker who I think, uh, although he's not necessarily maybe uh, in mainstream circles, absolutely is well known as Akira Kurosawa. He is one of those filmmakers, I think right there with Mizuguchi, who, and, and also with uh, Ozu, that make films that are every bit uh, at the same level and at the same quality and, and and masterpiece level of Kurosawa. They just may not be as well known. And Mizuguchi's done several films. He, in fact, uh, something else in the Criterion Collection that he did a little earlier in this was like the uh, Human Trilogy, which is just an amazing, uh, although very, very uh, dramatic, uh, the kind of film that is definitely sort of a punch to the guts drama-wise, but is really impressive. Uh, another film he made just before this was Harry Carey, also also known as Seppuku, which uh, is a samurai film, just full-blown samurai movie, and is also very dramatic, very, um, without having a lot of action in it, it draws you in and creates such an element of suspense. And then what he has done here is kind of uh, seemingly gone in a completely different direction and yet brought all of those ties that he had with those films that we just mentioned, uh, and he brings them back together in this movie called Quidon. Quidon is loosely translated in Jap uh, Japanese as ghost story. And it's actually based from a collection of stories of Japanese folklore that was done by a Swedish expat, Lafketty O'Hearn, who came to Japan and, and collected these stories in a volume called Quidon. When he was putting this together, a lot of the art and a lot of the imagery that's used in telling these stories, which are really kind of classic folkloric ghost stories. We've all heard versions of these stories. I think that many of these stories have been already adapted, you know, from, from the version here in Japan on down where we've heard different versions of vengeful ghosts or people and, and things that are not who they seem to be. And a lot of times these are moral tales where, uh, we where people's honesty or their fidelity are being tested. And in this collection of stories, uh, which is what this is, is an anthology. In fact, I would argue it's one of the best horror anthologies ever done right next to uh, 
you know, Black Sabbath and, and Creep Show, George Romero's Creep Show and Mario Bava's Black Sabbath. I think this movie is definitely it's much more um, has, a, has a deeper artistic bent. It is trying to 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 uh, do a little bit more than maybe just tell a creepy story. But there are four stories here. They all take place really within the realm of like feudal Japan with ancient Japan. And I think that that is not obviously by accident for one thing, that's where a lot of the stories originated, but what Kobayashi is doing with his film in the 1960s, which by the way, visually speaking, this is a must own. If you're somebody who loves Japanese art, Kabuki theater, who loves those wood cut uh, prints that would have probably been in a copy of Kaidan when it was originally released of the book, what Kobayashi has done is he's taken and created these sets that are very artificial, that are very surreal, that you the foreground may seem very lush and vibrant and realistic, and then the background might be a painted wall with eyes peeking out of it. You know, there's such a weird dichotomy of what's happening, and yet he creates a very naturalistic portrait of people, the way that people are interacting sometimes in the film uh, and the rhythms of watching daily life. Uh, these stories could be told in a few minutes easily. Uh, there's not a lot of dialogue in them. The first story is the black hair that details the story of a samurai who leaves his wife and goes off seeking fortune and a new wife and finally eventually finds his way back home and discovers that things have changed in a significant way. Uh, there's a story, the woman in the snow, that involves a woodcutter that encounters this extremely... Uh, frightening and life-changing event and then he is sworn to secrecy and he goes about his life wondering if he can ever keep that under wraps forever of uh, the i think the centerpiece of the movie uh it's almost a movie in and of itself really it's called hoichi the earless that details a blind monk who is recruited by a dead kingdom to to basically play ballads of their exploits except he because he's blind he doesn't aware he's not aware they're dead and the final story in a cup of tea, which is very different. And I think for me, uh, when I first saw the film, I wasn't able to jump into that one as much. But this is where, where I think Kobayashi is kind of stepping out and almost creating something of a meta narrative with how ghost stories relate to us and how do they relate to us in history? What, what is the connection between uh, a ghost that haunts us and a history that sort of the echoes of that history are still affecting us. Or when we dig that history up in a painful way, how does it affect us in the here and now? And that last story involves a, uh, a samurai lord who starts to see the image of a man in his cup of tea, and it sort of things escalate from there. And it is very different. I think its pacing is different. It has an open-endedness to it. But I think that uh, the stories themselves are very entertaining as singular pieces. But what they amount to is Kobayashi's sort of uh, indictment, I think, of this culture that, for the most part, we often see heralded. You know, there's an there's an honor and a sort of nobility to this world, and uh, movies like Quiet and movies like Harry Carey sort of undercut that and take a closer look at it and how that history has trickled down to the modern Japan of the 1960s and and every historical point along the way. So I think this is a fascinating movie that you can simply watch as a ghost story. Uh, though, here's the th deal. It's very uh, methodical. It is very slow. This whole movie is three hours long. Four stories. Uh, the shortest is still long by most conventional 
uh, consideration, the middle story is almost its own film. And I think those middle sections, The Woman in the Snow and Hochi the Earless, are the meat. But uh, everything here is gorgeous to look at. There's a sequence with it is documenting two rival uh, kingdoms fighting a naval battle. And it is visualized in a way that's... Uh, that's so compelling. It's not what you would think, and yet it's so stunning. It's one of the best-looking horror films I've ever, ever, ever seen. So, huge recommendation. I would say this is a must-own. The special features here are great, but the film itself, like Dave said about the other one, the, the film itself is the main attraction. Yeah, and quite on, um, I just watched this recently, Nathan, you had recommended it because I think we were going back and forth. There's a few of those um, early Japanese horror movies that I just could not remember which one I had seen. And this wasn't one of this wasn't the one. So um, I did watch quite on on your recommendation. And yeah, it's a great film. Um, like you said, one of the best horror anthologies out there, even though it is a lot longer than normal one. Cool. And and I'll be honest, I have not seen it yet, so I'm looking forward to seeing this one. Do you own this one, Dave? You know what? I don't. I was looking at my collection, and I do not own this one yet. This is good. I think I think you will really like it a lot. Like I say, visually speaking, this is the imagery in this is astounding. Even if you bought this Blu-ray and only watched Hoichi the Earless, you would be stunned. <laughs> wow. That's not to say I, the other three aren't good. I'm just saying it's 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 quality stuff. And there were for, for for a while there, I always confused it with Onibaba. It was also also a great film. Onibaba. It is, yeah. And, and that uh, one I do own and that one I have seen, but um, no, I have not seen quite on and, and I, listening to you, uh, the both of you discuss it. I'm, I'm really anxious. And Mizuguchi did one that was Ugetsu, which is really, really good. And it's essentially a, it's an yep. extrapolation of the story. That's the block hair. So the first story in this, um, in, in this anthology is done as a feature like film in Ugetsu. And that movie's done a very haunting black and white. Onababa was black and white. Curry and Echo, another film. Uh, was done in black and white. This is in color and it's stunning color, like technicolor, kind of like, you know, uh, I, wow. the, the kind of imagery, the, the the way the images pop, it's like you think you're watching a, like a Powell and Pressburger movie, like a Black Narcissus or something like that. But it's a, uh, it's so good. I want to say something real quick that the DVD of Quiet On, and I, this was to my peril, by the way, because I was showing this to my kids the other night and my daughter turned to me, uh, who's, who's nine and says, uh, uh, turns to me and says, Dad, this is like a Japanese Black Sabbath. <laughs> I was like, okay, there, yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, raise them right or maybe raise them wrong depends on your perspective. But the <laughs> the thing is, the, the 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 DVD version is 161 minutes. I was not aware, but apparently the Blu-ray version is 183 minutes. Of in somewhere in those 183 minutes, there are indeed some boobies. <laughs> which I was not aware of when I was uh, watching this. So I'm watching the segment, the woman in the snow and suddenly there are bare breasts on screen. And my wife is like, what? And I'm like, I swear I don't remember this. And for good reason, I had never seen those before uh, <laughs> that are, that are a part of this. Now I will say, I think the one thing I noted about the longer cut, which is about 20 minutes, 20 minutes is an extensive amount of footage actually uh, to add back into a film, but it does create that sense. I don't know if you felt this way, Trey, because I'm pretty sure the version you watched is the longer version. Uh, yeah. That it it destabilizes the ghost stories a little bit. It makes it much more about the culture that you mm -hmm. are watching people sort of perform some of these. You know, they're going about their day as a woodcutter, or they're going about their day uh, 
you know, fetching water and things like that. And that, that mundanity adds to the supernatural and vice versa. So it's like, you're watching something very realistic and suddenly you're thrown directly into the abstract. And those, you know, you, we talk, I was comparing this to the creep show. It's not a bad comparison because I think Ramiro must've seen this film because the lighting changes that happen in creep show where something super dramatic will happen and the lighting will go completely red or completely blue. And it changes, you know, you're looking at something realistic and the next you're in a comic book or you're in a painting. This, this is what happens in Kaidon several times, uh, right? Trey, like suddenly the, the color changes will just become pure red or pure blue or, yeah. or there's an eye in the background. Or there's an eye. So um, <laughs> you can trace the, some of what Creepshow is doing all the way back to Kaidon. Okay, Trey, how about your next movie? Yeah, so these next two um, are kind of related as to why I picked them. And they both were movies I had watched in my criminal law class in college. And the first of these two is Spine Number 591, and that is 12 Angry Men by Sidney Lumet. And this is a very wide-known movie, and it's not anything that's going <laughs> to throw anyone off guard. But I think there's probably enough younger people who have not seen this movie and the way this deals with the courtroom drama and the discussions of this jury um, as they go through their deliberations, you know, with the jury, you have to get a unanimous decision or you're a hung jury. So it's just this one guy trying to pick apart arguments and convince these 11 others who are sure of this young man's guilt that they are that he's not guilty. And the way you just see different people's prejudices come out or different parts of their life come out and you see the, you know, the doubt kind of seep in and their guilty verdicts start to fall by the wayside. And it's just a very it's just a very different film, I think, because it does take place mainly in the same room for the majority of the film. And I think it's different in the way it's just, you know, not a lot of action. It's mostly talking back and forth and just discussion. So um, this is one that's always been one of my favorites, but um, just wanted to mention 12 Angry Men if you haven't picked it up yet. That's a great one. And Sidney Lamette is one of my uh, all-time favorite directors. I mean, he's made some amazing movies and you see his roots in television with 12 Angry Men. I mean, this is very early in his career. But yet he does some um, some cinematic things as well, shooting from down low and and trying different angles, um, you know, throughout the film. Uh, no, I, I'm a big fan of this one as well. And, and you wouldn't think that a, a movie in one basically in one setting with just dialogue, people going back and forth could be as riveting as this one is. And I think it absolutely is. Yeah, it's a great movie, and I think the thing is, is Sidney Sidney Lumet made great movies all through his career, even up to the very last. I would think the last film he might have done was Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Uh, also, and that's a that's a great movie too. Yes, yeah, I mean he he brought it his entire career. Um, it was also a fun. He would show up in films sometimes too. He's a very fun personality. Um, but Twelve Angry Men. I think when you go back and watch movies like that. That in in all the the glut of like courtroom, I mean, particularly in the nineties, right? Like the courtroom thriller was such a such a thing, right? Its own subgenre there for quite a while. And to go back and see a movie like Twelve Angry Men, you see it done right, you know, in a way that it's still suspenseful. It's still 
boils down, right? You don't need a lot of, we don't need some scenes where, you know, the lawyers leave the courtroom and they get gunned at, or you have to have to outrun a black car or something, right. you know, all right. of the tension and the thrills are really right there in the courtroom. Yeah. And I think it's very telling that, um, and again, I watched this in a, you know, 201 level criminal law class, but one of these special features, there is an um, excerpt and I think it's a little booklet from an actual law professor. So it just gives you the, like the reality of the situation and how realistic it is and how things are treated in a courtroom situation. Yeah, I definitely think that's a must own 12 Angry Men and such great performances too. Yeah. Yep. Um, how about your next one, Dave? All right. Well, my next movie, um, this one is, let me see what uh, I'm trying to see what the spine number is here. It is spy number 153 and is available on Blu-ray. I, I have the DVD and it is a film by Barbie uh, Schroeder called General Idi Amin Dada, a self-portrait. Um, what happened? And it was back in 1974. Schroeder had gone to Uganda to make a film about Idi Amin, who was this just he was he was a a, a ruthless dictator is what he was. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people died during the seven, eight years that he was in power. He, he was a military leader. He took uh, control of Uganda in a coup and um, he was just brutal. I mean, one of like, he's right up there with, uh, you know, with, with Saddam Hussein and all these guys. This is one of the most brutal dictators uh, of his country. And, and what happened was he, he got everything together. He staged all of these parades and everything, knowing that Barbe Schroeder was going to be coming over to make this movie. Um, now, flash forward a little bit, Schroeder makes his film, he cuts it together. Uh, then Amin gets word from some of his agents in Britain that audiences for this film are laughing at the movie as if it was a comedy. So that concerned Amin. He tried to make himself look like, you know, this sort of, this sort of amazing leader, uh, almost godlike in a way, is what he was going for here. Um, so he had his agents transcribe the film and send him their notes. He then contacted Schroeder and told him, cut two and a half minutes out of this movie. Please cut these two and a half minutes. Now, Schroeder refused. So what did Amin do? He gathered up all the French citizens living in Uganda, placed them in a hotel, and gave them Schroeder's home phone number, telling them that if they wanted to return to their homes, they'd have to persuade the director to obey his wishes. Now, Schroeder had spent time with Amin. He knew what this guy was capable of and figured that if he didn't do it, he would start killing these prisoners. So Schroeder cut the scenes out and gave Amin an editing credit in the film. <laughs> he eventually threw those minutes back in. And I got to tell you, I don't know what two and a half minutes Idi Amin objected to, but the other 90 make him look just as much of an ass as the two and a half. I'm sure the two and a half minutes that he had cut out of this. This guy just, he, he's, he's going out. There's a scene where they're going down a river and um, it's, you know, they're, they're just all of this wildlife. This is Africa. And, you know, you think of like being out on safari or whatever, and they're going down this river and there is a crocodile on the side of, uh, of the river. 
And Amin says, I have a connection with the animals. I can get him to move. And you just see him looking at the crocodile and moving his hands. And the crocodile doesn't move. He doesn't even blink. Thing just sits there. And, and Amina goes, uh, he's tired. I'm just going to let him sit there. I mean, this is kind of what the guy does. There's a scene where he has a race in a pool with all crazy. of these other guys. Now, <laughs> he's cutting across the pool in their lanes. And they're not trying. They're going to let Idi Amin win because they know if they don't, they may not be here tomorrow. It's just, it's one of those type of movies that it's, it's, it's tragic in that this guy was the way he was and the control he had over people. I mean, you see a scene where he's dressing down one of a member of his cabinet that this guy, and then there's a little credit, a little blurb at the bottom in text that says the next day his body was found floating in the water. You know, that this this guy was in charge of this country and he was a ruthless dictator. And yet this movie makes him look like a clown. And I, I thought it was, it's a fascinating, fascinating documentary. It really is. Um, and I don't know if either of you have seen this. I have seen this movie and the the sadness of all of this is I, well, so I had forgotten really that this movie existed until you put it on the list. I was like, Oh, that's awesome. And sadly, I think that this movie is more timely than ever. I think yeah. that what it is showing the narcissism that it's on display here. It's like you said, the other 90 minutes, <laughs> what did the, but he's so deluded. He's so completely right. deluded. Uh, uh, in fact, it even had it, it put out like this is his title he wants to be called this and Lord of the Beasts was in there with the <laughs> King of Scotland you know they made the film the last King of Scotland and it's like it's like seven hundred words but total ass is not one of them although you're right you know, but he's a murderous despot that's what he is and right. cannot escape it and that's what Troder shows and displays but what you see through here is a man that that, that cannot stand for this fragile little universe that he's created is this image of himself in his mind that it's so fragile that he will kill other people, a lot of other people to keep it intact. Yes. And that kind of, that kind of, when you are that much of a narcissist, when your sense of self is that fragile and you are put into a position of power, everyone listen up. It does not end well. No. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you. I saw this movie after I saw the King of Scotland. When you watch this movie, you, you say there's, you know, Forrest Whitaker definitely deserved his Academy Award oh, yeah. for the King of Scotland. He nails Idi Amin. I mean, he gets this guy down pat as to the way he was and the way he reacted and everything. There's a scene where he's giving a speech to these doctors. That's insane. And the doctors start laughing at him because of what he's saying. But then they realize maybe we shouldn't be laughing because we might end up dead. Right? Tomorrow. There's no, there's no one's going to say you're wrong. Yeah, right. I mean, it ain't far off from telling people to drink bleach to cure, you know, illnesses. But right. anyway, <laughs> highly recommend it. It's a great film, and I think that uh, what is fascinating is exactly Schroeder knew going in. I think, and it, a lot of guts to do that. Okay. Go yeah. into a situation where you know. I mean, I think he probably knew he was the kind of guy that would hold a hotel full of people hostage to right. get it to get his, his film edited. This is like Barbe Schroeder almost doing Werner Herzog in a way. It, yeah, yeah. You know, this is the type of movie that you can see Herzog making, just putting everything. Herzog out. might have got himself killed. 
Right. There's a, good chance. There's a good chance Herzog <laughs> might still be in a jail cell somewhere in Uganda right now. But um, so glad that didn't happen. But fascinating movie. Definite, definite recommendation. I think it's a, definitely a buy. And it's a, again, it's um, enlightening. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen it, but it sounds so interesting. And it sounds like almost the um, making of would be just as interesting as the movie yeah. would be. So, um, yeah, that's that's a sounds like a great pick, Dave. I can't wait to check that one out. Yeah, so far, guys, cannot go wrong. Now, I'm going to share my next title. Maybe you can, but uh, so far, so good. Uh, my next movie, so I originally had a couple here that kept, like, porting in and out, uh, and I was walking by the collection, uh, the, the my shelf today, and I looked at it, and I was like, you know what? Nope, I need to talk about this movie, because the simple fact that I own this movie, that it's in Criterion, is in and of itself amazing and kind of astounding. And uh, so my, my movie is Repo Man, Alex Cox's Repo Man from 1984. And uh, it's not the kind of movie I honestly would have ever thought the Criterion Collection would have got around to uh, <laughs> making a, an addition of, of, of adding it to the collection and giving us this kind of really cool special features and a special edition and, and restoration, but I'm glad they did. This is pure cult movie, hundred uh, percent Alex Cox's film. And Alex Cox didn't make a lot of movies. Most of the movies he made were profoundly strange. And this is no ex exception. It's definitely a sort of weirdo counterculture, very much it, a film like this couldn't really exist outside of the eighties, but that it's also not of the eighties. It's sort of a, like a, re a rebuff or a rebuke of the, the 80s in a sense. It's punk all the way, I think, down to its characters and to its very sensibility. Have either one of you guys seen this movie, Repo Man? I have not, actually. I have seen it, and I actually... One of my favorite soundtracks is the soundtrack for this movie. I mean, I think that the the, the soundtrack for this is amazing. It's, it's got like the circle jerks on there. Yeah. Black um, I think Pablo is... Picasso might be my favorite song. <laughs> yes. And Iggy Pop does the theme song for it. It's, yeah. Uh... The, there's a lot of great music in, uh, in Repo Man. I have seen it. And you know what? It's one of those things, like, like you're saying, I mean, it, it, it came out of, of the eighties, but it's it's him doing almost like what Wes Anderson did yes. many years later. He creates an alternate reality that resembles our world in every way, yet follows none of its rules. No, and it's populated with these people that like you don't know that you'd actually want to hang out with them. But it is so fascinating to watch them in this universe. So you go into a store, any store, the beer is just a white uh, austere label that says the word beer on it. Yeah, and then right. <laughs> uh, something will say something like canned, uh, clean cut cl peaches or something like that, you know, and it'll it'll say like cornflakes, you know, uh, lightly dusted or something. And that's it. Someone went to a lot of trouble to take everything on these shelves instead of just making it look like a normal grocery store shelf. It's all it looks like you're looking through the glasses of they live right, you know, and mm -hmm. you're seeing just like bland white background with these big black letters that say the beer or something on it and everything they have looks like that and so there's such a level of detail but this film takes place like you said it's not the real world although you might imagine that los angeles could look like this if you've never been to los you know i think right. some people in their mind think that los angeles is like this in the real world but uh probably emilio estevez's best performance <laughs> he's he's this sort of like 
uh, malcontent repo man who starts working with Harry Dean Stanton, who Harry Dean Stanton, right? He's one of those guys that was discovered later in life, right? And then uh, through, through you know, I remember, I probably first remember seeing him in Alien in 79. I know he's in movies before that, but, you know, people mm-hmm. like Wim Wenders and David Lynch using him in their films and Alex Cox. I mean, here he basically gets to be the main character or one of the main characters. Right. And he's such a, he's got like, he looks like a, he's got... A weathered face is one way to say it. A run over by a truck face is another way to say it. Truck across <laughs> 50 miles of highway, you know. Uh, he looks like he's got all the world right there on his face. And this combination of the two of them growing. And then throw in Tracy Walters, who has that, who's the, who's the mechanic, who has his such weird uh conspiracy theories involving aliens and time travel. And there's a car that seems to have a radioactive trunk. And the Chevy Malibu that they're that, that people keep uh, it gets repossessed and then they lose track of it and the government's after it and yet none of this really you know it has that same weird sensibility that movies like you know Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai but it's it's different than those films because it has this very absurdic it's like you said the Wes Anderson comparison it's so specific and so fastidious in all of its little details that you feel grounded by it in a weird way Tracy Walters is talking about this idea of you know, this is a plate of shrimp. If you hear somebody say the word plate or shrimp, and then suddenly here you have a plate of shrimp, you know, it's like the universe right. materialized it just for you. And uh, he goes on this tirade that's just fascinating that this movie has little bits and pieces and it's constantly making you think about weird, strange ideas. And there's a sensibility to it that I think is intoxicating. I want you can start watching this movie and you're thinking, what the hell am I watching? And then at the end, you're like, where can I get more of this? Right. <laughs> and, and and what's really cool about the special features is that's where the more is. Like, they do interviews with a lot of the people that worked on the soundtrack. And it's so cool to see some of these bands that got to be a part of this and talk about being a part of Repo Man. And, and how Repo Man inspired them in some cases. You get some interviews with Iggy Pop. There's some really cool stuff here. Uh, it, it's neat because there are conversations that they have with Harry Harry Dean Stanton. You actually hear him talking, and Stanton is not, you know, was not a motor mouth by any means, and not right. a guy that like was, I think, accustomed to being in the spotlight. So getting any opportunity to just hear him even talk uh, is really cool. And the, the transfer in this movie is weird because I'm used to seeing this movie on like a busted VHS, you know, uh, that mm-hmm. looks like it's nearly tracking all lines through it. It almost feels like. I don't know. It's unsettling to watch a clear, pristine cut of Repo Man, and and that's what this is. I mean, it's 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 really something. I, it's funny. I'm looking back. I covered this movie on a podcast. It was the it was the Saturday B Movie Reel, Kevin Batchelder's podcast. It was. I don't even think it's around anymore. To be honest with, you. I don't think he's made new episodes in a while. But it was ten years ago. Oh, this wow. summer, it was it was the summer of 2012 that I was on his podcast covering this movie. That's probably the time this came out, right? The the Blu-ray. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, it might have been around that time. Yeah, and that's some wild cover art. This is an example of some really cool box art. Uh, oh, box art great. for Repo Man. This is um, it. Really, it's 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 it really is just a fun film. It, it is. is. It's it, yeah, you, like is. It's a, it's a cult classic. That's exactly what yep. it is. And yep. it's worth it's worth every penny. It's a movie that doesn't think like other movies. And that's a good thing. Right. Yep. All right, Trey, how about your next movie? Um, my next one is Spine Number 600, and it's from 1959. 
Otto Priminger's Anatomy of a Murder. Um, And Anatomy of a Murder has one of my favorite actors of all time in Jimmy Stewart. Um, I've just always loved him since I was younger and it's just stuck with me. And this is another one where, and it's a long movie. I mean, it's almost three hours, I think. And it's one where you might have to stick in a little bit because the discussions pre-trial and it's another law film, by the way, but pre-trial stuff before they're in the courtroom, it's kind of your typical kind of comedy type light film. And then you get into this courtroom and the back and forth and everything that goes on. And it just keeps you, you know, on the edge of your seat and trying to unravel this like you are, you know, someone in the courtroom hearing these facts. And I just love this movie. Um, I think it's a great cast. I think it's got this great premise to it. And again, like 12 Angry Men, I think this is a movie that you don't see a whole lot of movies like this one. Um, We maybe got more fascination with law movies and courtroom movies and stuff like that in the 90s and all that. But um, something on this level and with this wavelength, I don't see you. I don't think you see a lot of films like it. So I just want to throw that one out there because I don't think that's that's one maybe a lot of people haven't seen. So I don't know if you two have seen that one or it's been many years, but I have seen it. Um, and Preminger is one of my uh, as again, like Lamette, I love him as a director. I think Advising okay. Consent is my favorite Otto Preminger film um, with the man with the golden uh, the golden arm, oh, yeah. you know, not too far behind the Frank Sinatra d- drug addiction film. He was a guy who pushed boundaries. He was like very controversial with a lot of his films. I mean, even the ones that weren't that great, The Moon is Blue, which they did a MASH episode about that back <laughs> in the uh, uh, 70s or, or early 80s, I think it was, where they tried to get a copy of it. And it was not a great movie. I did eventually see The Moon is Blue, but because they say the word virgin in it, that made it you know, uh, somehow controversial. And it, But that wasn't a great movie. But you look at Preminger, a lot of the other films that he made, um, the ones I mentioned, and this one, Anatomy of Murder, was a controversial film at the time as well. And it is Jimmy Stewart sort of stepping out of what you think of as the typical Jimmy Stewart film at least Mm -hmm. if not role the sort of film he did that with anthony mann with those great westerns he made with anthony mann that where you see jimmy stewart trying something a little bit different and i love that about this movie as well um but yeah i'm i'm with you i think this is this is one that's that's definitely worth uh worth checking out as well as a lot of preminger's uh well not a lot but a good number of preminger's other movies are, uh, are worth checking out as well, but this is right up there. This is this is a great film. Yeah, this is really good. I forgot I actually had this on DVD from way back in the day. Um, one of those films that's buried somewhere in one of the cases, <laughs> and uh, it is a really it's a really good movie. And I uh, yeah, the Man of the Golden Arm is an, is an excellent movie, and so is it this is, one. Um, and I don't have the criterion though for this. I'm pretty sure. I think mine was just a. I don't know if it was a Warner's movie or something like that. I, I think mine's just a regular DVD yeah. of Anatomy of a Murder 2. I don't believe yeah. I have the Criterion version so of it I'll either. Have to... Hey, I've got one. You guys don't. Okay, so Dave, how about your next movie? All right. Uh, well, my next film, uh, we're going, uh, it's, a, it's a more recent, It's well, it's the, it's the most recent of all the ones that I'm talking about uh, so far anyway. It's from 1999, directed by Lynn Ramsey, and it is Rat Catcher. Uh, and I want to say this might have been her first 
film. I, I think, think so. This was it was when, her debut, I believe. Yeah, I think this was her debut. Um, and it's a story about this 12-year-old boy from Glasgow who, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's, it's, he's leaving a troubled life already. There's a lot of things going on in this film. Um, the streets are filled with trash. There's a garbage strike going on. Um, uh, his father is a drinker, uh, and that leads to some sort of unpleasant moments at home. And James is also responsible for the death of a friend. And it's a scene where him and a neighbor, they're out playing, this boy named Ryan, and they're, uh, they're out playing. Uh, they're by the banks of this sort of dirty canal, and they're sort of jostling back and forth. And then uh, James gives Ryan a, a playful little shove, and Ryan falls into the canal, and he never emerges. And later on, you see them pulling his body out of the canal. So James runs off. He doesn't tell anyone what's happened. But you know what? The movie's not even about that. That's just an event that happens in the film. This movie is about this young boy trying to let his dreams carry him beyond the reality of his life. And there are scenes where he sort of um, hops a, a bus and he goes into this new development where they're building these new houses that have this great scenery and everything. And he's living there. So, and you see him sort of, you can just imagine him imagining his family living in one of these houses. And it really is about that. It's, it's, it's about this kid's um, trying to let his imagination carrying him away from this, this, the hardships of his life and what's happened in his life. Um, and it's the one that introduced me to Lynn Ramsey, actually. And then I, I didn't see more Morvern Collar until a year or two later. Um, but I became a big fan of her as a filmmaker from this and Morvern Collar. I think Morvern Collar is a great film as well. Uh, but this one just sort of really grabbed me. And I always have to watch it with the subtitles. It's Scottish. Uh, but a very heavy, thick Scottish accent. There's a you know, deep talking, you know, in this movie. Yeah. yeah. It really is. So I do have to watch it with the subtitles on. Uh, and anybody who's going to watch it, I recommend, you know, you do the same. Um, but it's not an easy film to watch. There are some very harsh, very difficult scenes in it. But it really is just about this kid letting his imagination carry him beyond his existence. Yeah, this is a masterpiece. This is... I think I saw this film in either 99 or 2000, around the time it came out. And it was that point date, like what you're talking, where it was really trying to seek out different films, right? The movies mm -hmm. that were going under the radar. And I don't remember who reviewed this or talked about it, but uh, most likely it was Roger Ebert probably at the time. It was probably the person I was reading the most. And probably, uh, right, yeah. the films, like it is, it's a masterpiece. And it is, it falls into, you know, a lot of these films when we talk about that from... And then I realized there's a lot of my listeners, a lot that we've mentioned tonight, of movies that deal with um, almost from the from a younger person's perspective, from a kid's perspective, not kids' films, mm -hmm. but perspectives of of someone with a little bit of innocence left, trying to keep that innocence grounded as long as they can. And in Ratcatcher, we see that sort of dissolving, and the way they use that canal visually as sort of the metaphor for that is is amazing and it's in yeah. and it's it is it's a tough it's a tough movie to watch sometimes a very haunting ending if i remember correctly yes it, uh, definitely um and and Lim ramsey all of ramsey's movies are like that but um this may still be my favorite one 
Yeah. And Mar- Marvin Cantler is a close, very close oh, second because I really like what, what she did with, with that film as well, giving us a lead character who we're not going to agree with a lot of what this lead no. character And does. I believe that's Samantha Morton, right? Not long yes, after. Yes, Samantha Morton, yeah. I can't, mm-hmm. I, I think I became aware of Samantha Morton in Minority Report, and she's amazing in that movie. But yeah. th- then to see her in Morvan Collar was like, really, she has this character that she's flushing out. And as you said, not, and I think that's the thing. She's, Ramsey has the ability to take these characters that we don't have a lot of sympathy for per se, right. uh, and yet create them as believable understandable not necessarily right. we like them but they're understandable we understand why she's yes. doing what she yeah. does but we don't agree with her i mean you know her her boyfriend has committed suicide and is laying in the room and she goes out to a, to a club well that's interesting <laughs> you know? too this idea of of ignore when the reality is so devastating that you ignore it we have the boy here you know his, the his friend his fall you know he He's sort of responsible for his death, and he has—he's just going on with his life, right? Yeah, like in the face right. of that, both films deal with the exact same thing in a certain way. Uh, it does, yeah. And it reminded me a little bit of of um, another one in the Criterion Collection. I'm not talking about tonight, but um, uh, David Gordon Green's George Washington. Yeah, yeah, definitely. that has a terrible event that happens in it that just sort of gets forgotten as they live their lives. Yes, and and, and I think there's a certain—not that there's not. And the warmth, there's a warmth to David Gordon Green's films a lot of times that mm-hmm. he'll like, um, maybe, maybe not the Halloween films, you know, but like, right, right. There's a certain, <laughs> um, there's a certain warmth to them that, uh, cuts us where Ramsey states, you know, she, she allows this character to go on and imagine their flights of fancy, but she remains pretty clear eyed about everything. And that mm-hmm. ends up being kind of more devastating. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but that's an amazing movie. That's a highly, I don't own this on Criterion and I need to get it. I don't own it at all. And I need to get it. Because oh, it's an wow. Amazing film. I, I think I still just have the DVD. I don't, I don't yeah. even sure if this one is on Blu-ray. I think it might be, but I think I just it, have the DVD. It's on Blu-ray now. One. Yeah. The Criterion has okay. a Blu-ray of it out. So that's the one I'll pick up. Cause I don't think I nice. own the DVD, but I've seen it a couple of times and it's an excellent film. Cool. Um, so my next film to kind of dovetail with that, uh, you know, uh, the kind of loss of innocence of, of, of films seen through younger protagonists' perspectives and also, you know, dealing with, with films that have a kind of dreamy atmosphere to them. Uh, I, ha- I picked Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout uh, from 1971, and it is a film that, uh, you know, for years and still to this day, I... I I don't know. I, I want to find a way to get myself and my family to Australia. I've never been. I've always wanted to go. Now, of course, the Australia that I kind of grew up reading about and, and seeing films about is probably, you know, very far from the real Australia. But there was this point in time through the 70s uh, and the 80s where there was a certain mythic quality, right? Particularly, you know, if you made a film about Australia, you know, I guess I guess in the 80s, yeah, Crocodile Dundee. But, you know, like if you, the, the other filmmakers were making movies, that kind of centered on a sort of, uh, you know, the mysticism or a, a certain kind of uh, dreamlike quality specifically related to the Australian outback. And we have several of those films. I mean, Peter Ware is a director who's, who's done a lot of great films. Uh, his big movie that's also part of the Criterion collection that I highly recommend. And I just showed it to my kids was a uh, picnic at hanging rock. Also a very oh, yes. strange film in a certain sense almost a horror film although i think a horror fan may watch it and be like i don't know what you're talking about but yeah right um, right yeah <laughs> but it's a it's a very interesting um strange 
idiosyncratic film uh, that creates a portrait of the the difference between kind of the colonial world that the characters inhabit and then the and and the natural world and the kind of mystery mysteries that it may conceal walkabout's very similar except that in 1971 it's uh dealing with characters from that time frame and you have this young girl like 14 year old girl who's played by jenny agate who later is in uh you know american werewolf in london and and many other films but werewolf in london is probably the one that you know people uh initially know her from uh this is a few years this is actually 10 years earlier and it's her and her little brother they i don't want to go too much into it but they're out in the outback with their father and they end up being lost and they are on their own and then they run in to this young Aborigine boy played David uh, Gillipilly, who's been in a ton of movies. He's been he's been in like everything from Crocodile Dundee to you know this yeah, the, uh, Mad uh, Dog Morgan, Bob Lerman's yeah. Australia, uh, Philip Noyce's Rabbit Proof Fence. Um, he's been in a lot, and he was in the Tracker. Yes, he was the star yeah. of the Tracker, which is an amazing Tracker. It, d- d- watch if watch this movie, and then Tracker is a would be a really interesting experience to see. Too. Right, and 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 Gillipi, who and we just lost him this year i yeah think. we did uh it's unfortunate it was sad i know he had a lot of actually i was reading that uh you know it a lot of issues um in and out of alcoholism that, that what i read was initially when he was a younger wow. person they introduced him to alcohol and i think that was where he you know he maybe started having issues with it but in the, he he's great in this movie to be honest he was great in most of the movies i ever saw him in and uh, he did he tended to play mostly the same character he uh uh, an Aborigine man who, in, in this particular case, he's a young man who's out there and he's been sent on this walkabout. It's supposed to be him coming into his own out in the wilderness by himself and he encounters this woman, uh, this young girl and her brother. And it's like their cultures intermingle and mix and they have to survive together. But then they kind of have the impact that each of them has on the other sort of uh, reverberates through their lives as they go forward. And it's a very haunting movie. The, the cinematography is amazing. The adventure, this is not, again, we're not talking a kid's film here, but the the journey that they go on is fascinating both visually and from an adventure standpoint, but it's the characters and the way they are developed that I think really adds to this movie. Yeah. And um, I I don't know what you, what you think of it, Dave, if you've seen it, but it's a very powerful picture. It's one of my all-time, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. I mean, I, I think it's, it might be... Uh, second only to the road warrior as my favorite movie from Australia, you know, because yeah. I absolutely, I love this film and it's, it really is one, some of the, there's heartbreaking moments in this and it has to deal with just a lack of communication. That's it. Yes. Yes. You know, you, you have Jenny Agatha's character and she's sitting there and she's going water. We need water. I can't do it any simpler than that. Why can't you understand me while she's talking to, David Guppolo's character, who is um, Aborigine, he doesn't speak the language. And and finally, her brother starts pointing to his mouth, going, oh, go, 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 go. And then he understands and he gets them water. He finds water for them. Um, but it's that communication. And, and you see sort of a, a romance developing between David Guppolo's character and, and Jenny Agutter's character. But there's a tragedy to that. There's something happens at the end because she doesn't understand. Yeah, that whole... What's going on? And he's putting it all out there and she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. And so it really is a tragic film. 
And it's set in, you know, this, there are certain movies where you think of the outback and you think, oh man, it would be a very interesting place to visit. There are a couple movies that, that have me thinking maybe not. This one and then Wake and Fright. Yes, yes, correct. Or <laughs> two films that I'd say, I don't know that I ever want to actually visit the outback. Yeah, Lost Weekend may be another one. <laughs> and Lost Weekend is one as well. Yeah, right. When they, when they go to that. Yeah, stay away from the manatees. But right. the... Uh, <laughs> This, but the look of this film, it's one of the most gorgeous films. It really is. It's beautiful. And I have this on Blu-ray. It is an amazing, Criterion did an amazing job. And the with this cover movie. of him standing there on the car and it's on fire. But like from the very beginning of the film, from like even when the interactions with the father where we know something is off, you know, and mm-hmm. you're right. It's about people uh, and, and, and the and the barriers between our relationships and then yeah. our barriers between mankind and the nature. And it's just so beautifully done. I love Picnic and Hanging Rock too. I think they're both equally masterpieces. Yeah. That one has definitely more sense of the mystery and the mysticism. And this is that man against nature, man against man. And, 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 and it's a melancholy. It's a really got a melancholy vibe to it. Rogue's an excellent director uh don't look oh, yeah. now the man who fell to earth um performance yeah. yes yes uh just a just a great great director and this is probably in my opinion this is probably his best film i i agree if i had to pick one that i wanted to hold on to it would definitely be walkabout without without question and there's another one yet another one i haven't seen but um i love nicholas rogue and jenny augeter so definitely one on my list oh definitely yep yeah, yeah, great movie. And um, right. you, what's your next movie, Trey? Um, my next movie is uh, Kira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Um, nice. And that is spy number 190. I had to get a Kurosawa film on here, and I tried not to pick one of the... I guess, you I mean, didn't want to go the Seven Samurai well right? Rashomon <laughs> route, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is a, like... Uh, you know, like Kurosawa loved to do. This is a retelling of a Shakespeare type story. And this one's Macbeth. And I think Throne of Blood just kind of has this special feeling to me. This past year, I had watched it um, on Thanksgiving. I think it was the night of Thanksgiving. I came home and watched this. And it kind of just made me nostalgic for something I didn't know I was nostalgic for. And I think that's just watching, having memories of watching these old black and white movies, whether that be Westerns or dramas or anything um, around the Thanksgiving holidays over at my grandpa's house. So Throne of Blood definitely hit something with me, but I think it's an excellent um, samurai story as are most of Kurosawa's films, really. Um, This is one of those we've talked about covers a little bit, and I don't like the cover of this one. (laughs) This one's kind of off putting to me. It's kind of um, cartoonish on the front. but that's neither here nor there. I was going to highlight one of these special features on here, which is this documentary um, is a making of documentary. And it was created as part of the Toho Masterwork series. And it's on Akira Kurosawa and it's called It Is Wonderful to Create. And I think that's pretty cool that we get this look from Toho at this making of this film that is so old and we don't usually get something like that. So, um, yeah, it's an excellent movie. If you haven't seen it, one of my favorite Kurosawa films, um, it's right up there at the top. So definitely recommend that one. Yeah. I'm, I'm that, that, that is a, that is a great one. It's been years since I've seen it. Um, I don't think there's been, and there's a lot of, uh, Kurosawa in the criterion collection. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, even ones that, that, you know, aren't necessarily like, you know, the ones we, we threw out there, like his, his seven samurai, Rashomon, Aikiru, those are like the, the, the more well-known titles, but throne of blood is up there. And you're right. This is like his, his take on Macbeth. And it's, it's a great film. I mean, I'm even, I even like high and low. I don't know if you guys ever saw that one, but Mm -hmm. that's another really great um, Kurosawa movie. That's, that doesn't go back to that time period. You know, it doesn't necessarily take you back to the, to the time of the, uh, of the, you know, the, the samurai, but um, no throne of blood is, is an awesome film. Yeah, I feel like Throne of Blood's a little bit underrated in in terms mm. of the samurai films because it does tend to be one that I think sometimes gets overlooked. And high and low, yeah, they're they're also the the like Kurosawa crime films as well. And then some yeah. movies that fall outside that movie, like Ikaru, which is a fantastic movie that um is very simple. It's about a dying salary man, right? Like and um, but but an amazing film. I I was really partial to, and I had this on the list a couple times to uh dreams that he did in the 90s which is um yeah very much more again a very visual film that is really him just taking little like uh vignettes uh and exploring them and it, and it they you know i think some some people might find it heavy-handed because it t- gets into a lot of environmental themes but it's clearly things that are on his mind and he he, he expresses them in a very kind of poetic sort of way and uh, there's even one scene where that you go inside of a Van Gogh painting, and Van Gogh is played by Martin Scorsese of all people. <laughs> wow! So uh, I don't know if you guys have seen. Have you guys seen Dreams? I, I, I have seen Dreams, yes. And I saw the, the other um, uh, '90s movie that he did, Rhapsody in August. Yes, yeah. Which, is, which I want to say was set in Naga. Was it Nagasaki? I believe, I or believe just it was. outside yeah. Nagasaki. I don't think it was Hiroshima. But um, it's a fine little movie too. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, and it's it's about a, it's about an, a, an elderly woman. Her her brother had moved to America, but her husband was killed in the bombing, the yep. atomic bombing of Nagasaki. So her brother wants her to go visit him uh, in America, and she's she's having a, a real sort of conflict. She does not want to go to America because of what happened during the war, but she wants to honor her brother's wish. And Richard Gere is in this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kurosawa is so interesting because I remember, but it was such a big deal, and I didn't know who Kurosawa was, but even my family, who wasn't into necessarily watching a lot of foreign films, it was a big deal that he came back and did first Kejimusha and then uh, also ran, right, in the the 80s. And to both excellent. Yeah, and at that point it was, uh, everyone was astonished that he made those films because of his age and Mm-hmm. Uh, and the scale and the scope of those movies, I think that that Ron is better a little bit than Kijimusha. Kijimusha feels like yeah. it's the he's revving up, he's getting ready, you know, mm-hmm. and then, then right. uh, Ron's the full deal. And honestly, I think it's as good as anything he's ever done. Um, and I know that, that, that things got a little bit crazy. They had him. What was it in the? I guess it was in the seventies that he was going to he was going to handle the Japanese uh, segments from Tora Tora Tora. Yeah, that didn't go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that didn't, that didn't go very well at all. No, no, didn't, didn't work out. <laughs> no, that, that, you know, I think in retrospective, we could have seen that was a bad idea. But, uh, right. <laughs> but, um, and I know he's got some writing credits on some things like Runaway Train. It was a, a, a film from the eighties mm-hmm. uh, with John Boyd. But, uh, yeah, this is a good one. I'm glad you brought that up, Trick, because I did want to see some Kurosawa yeah. on there. And I think almost you can't really go wrong. I think with any of the films, Hidden Fortress. Uh, no, uh, yeah. I know that yeah. there's a double disc of uh, Sanjuro and there. Yeah. Yojimbo. 
that's yep. that's a good deal. Uh, you get both yep. of those together. Um, and was it Hidden For or Hidden Fortress had the characters who supposedly influenced Lucas to make C three PO and R two D two? Wasn't that the movie? I think it was. Hidden it is. Fortress. It is Hidden Fortress. Yeah. The yeah. entire plot of Hidden Fortress, to a certain degree, sort of is reminiscent of Star Wars. You have, uh, yeah. I think, in that one, Mifune is almost kind of the Han Solo esque character a little bit, and then you've got the princess, and you got the two peasants that are sort of, uh, you know. Uh, basically just murmuring their way through the whole film and the, mm-hmm. at the sidelines observing. So it is very kind of Star Wars-esque. But, and it, yep. one of the great things about Kurosawa for me is it introduced me to Toshiro Mifun as as a great, you know, as 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 this actor who has done some amazing things. I think it was also, I think Rashomon might be my favorite uh, performance of Mifun's <laughs> because up to, the, before I discovered Kurosawa, my total experience with Toshiro Mifun was Steven Spielberg's 1941. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He was the commander this. of that submarine. And my favorite, my favorite line of his in the movie, this has not been honorable. <laughs> right. After, after they hear, after they hear Slim Pickens dropping his shoe. Into Slim the Pickens yeah. dropping his shoes in the toilet. <laughs> that's the line. Dave, that's the exact line I remember too. This has not been honorable. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a fun movie. I think that's a maybe way for Criterion to do that. You know, what's weird. No Spielberg movies in the Criterion Collection. Just a thought. No, that's just, right. Just a thought that's popped in my head. And he's, he's a studio man. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, maybe <laughs> yeah. not. I, you know what? I think 1941 should be the first one. <laughs> I think it should because I would love to hear a commentary because you know something? I actually enjoy 1941. I do too. A lot of I people. Do. And it's yes, it's loud. Yeah. And it's just overwrought. And there's a lot of crazy things going on in it. But I remember laughing my ass off when I saw that movie. Well, and I remember when they brought it on VHS. I remember they had some scenes that they cut. And there's one scene where the Japanese dressed up like Christmas trees. To yes, and they're <laughs> going, Banzai! Go, I can see why this got cut, but it's still kind of funny. Um, <laughs> it's a mess. Oh, where, where? Well, because, well, when they cut it, the movie didn't make sense. Yes, yeah. yeah. It didn't connect from one to the other. They cut out a good 20, 25 minutes out of that movie that it just didn't make sense you know how did slim pickens end up on the sub well we find that out in that scene you're talking about yeah you know how did how did the one uh, one guy get out of work to get to go to the dance and and why is his friend dressed as a marine we never understood why his friend was dressed as a marine Uh, and there was a lot of things cut out of that movie and of course it might be the quintessential eddie deason movie as well it, that's quite possible. The now, if Eddie there Deason. is such a thing as a quintessential Eddie, Eddie Deason movie, no, no, it's that 1941 or... on on the on the Ferris wheel with Murray Hamilton, that might be that might that be that or his, the uh, Polar Express, his, right? Yeah. Uh, What's that? That or the Polar Express? I remember they made him a child. He's a child. In the oh, Polar right. <laughs> what a hideously annoying voice. Well, that's you know. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, you bring up an interesting point though, Dave, about the uh, you know these movies being cut and edited into pieces. And I think that's one of the things that's cool because most of the time when the Criterion they release a film, they will try to find the most complete cut. You know, like I mentioned with Kaidan, that Blu-ray goes back and finds the 22 minutes they're missing. But something they do that's kind of fun on some of these films, and and I forgot to mention this, Repo Man is one of them. They provide the TV edited cut. So you take a movie like Repo Man and edit it down and, you know, he's going off about you go down melon farmers (laughs) All this kind of stuff. <laughs> and it's the wildest. It's its own weird artifact because it makes even less sense 
than the normal repo man because of how much they've had to cut out, particularly language-wise. It sometimes feels like they're speaking another language because it is. Instead of Mother Bleeper, it's Melon Farmer and all these weird things. And it's just <laughs> such a strange experience. And no wonder TV was so weird for me growing up in the 80s and watching it because all oh, most of the movies I saw were, you know, heavily edited R-rated films, apparently. <laughs> right. Um, so, Dave, what's your next movie? Well, my next movie, I'm going back into the... Um... Uh, into the uh, genre of documentary. And this is actually even, even more so than, than general Idiomine data. This is in my top five documentaries of all time. As a matter of fact, uh, I did publish a list of them over on my blog. It's number three behind uh, Woodstock, you know, the, the, uh, the documentary about the, uh, about the concert uh, and gates of heaven. And it is 1975's Grey Gardens, directed by uh, the, the Maisel's brother, brothers, Albert and David. And it is the story of the Edith Bouvier Beale and little Edie, uh, mother and daughter. And what it is, is they're living in uh, this... Um, basically what is a, just a uh, living in squalor. Uh, they were part of, you know, the, uh, the upper class back in the forties, fifties, whatever it might've been. They're, they're, they're cousins, aunt and cousin of Jacqueline Kennedy. And what happened is that they, their house just became run down and the two of them lived there together. Little big Edie and little Edie. And they talk at the beginning of the movie how Jacqueline Kennedy had come and with a whole bunch of people, they helped fix up the house, fixed it up for them to make it livable again. Well, by the time this movie came around, it's not livable anymore. You know, raccoons have now in, <laughs> are, 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 have, have invaded and there's about a hundred cats all over the place and there's just trash laying everywhere. And th again, it's, it's like it's, apocalyptic it is, squalor. It really is, but but yet Big Edie and Little Edie are still acting as if they're part of the upper class, as if they're part of this aristocracy um, that uh, that had you know been around for for so many years. But there's a friction between the two of them, and the Maisels capture that. They capture this friction between mother and daughter. The uh, little Edie is talking about, oh, if mother would just let me go, I could have married this guy. I could be living somewhere else. I wouldn't have to be in this house. And it's, it's near the beach. I mean, pretty much every other house in this area. And I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think where it was in New York. There's a section of, of New York. Um, uh, where, where was it? I'm, uh, East Hampton. East Hampton, uh, New York. It's a beach house. And the, and you know, there's a scene where little Edie even goes down to the beach at one point. Uh, but yet it is just, it's run down. I mean, this, this house is, it's disgusting in a lot of ways. I mean, there's this beautiful portrait that somebody had painted of, of big Edie. And at one point a cat goes behind it to take a piss. <laughs> You know, because it's just laying, it's just sitting on the ground against the wall. So it, it's just, it's just this sort of, um, I guess this clash of, 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 of culture in what is perceived culture and what is reality. Because Big Edie and Little Edie really do act as if they're still part of this sort of New York, uh, 
elite, but they're living in just absolute squalor. And it's, it's a fascinating film. They even put out a second one. I think it was called the Beals of Grey Gardens, yep, yep. which was the material that didn't make the first cut. They put that out later and that's fascinating as well. But this first movie, Grey Gardens, there's just something about this where you see, and there's finally a scene later on where they come to a head. Where a little, where little Edie is screaming into the camera, mother has done this to me, and Big Edie's in the background. They, I don't know if she didn't want her to sing. They both fancy themselves singers and dancers, and neither one can do either. It really is just a fascinating uh, movie, mostly because of who these two people were. You know, they were once part of that New York uh, sort of aristocracy, if you will. Um, and now to see them still acting that way, but living in just the, the, the worst conditions you could possibly imagine. Uh, I thought it was a, it's a fascinating movie. It really is. It doesn't feel like this is like, it feels like this should not be true, right? <laughs> like it's yeah. <laughs> this is like a, definitely a, a truth is stranger than fiction uh, scenario. No doubt. Right, right. It feels like this, like these are like John Irving characters come to life, like in, in the right. real world. <laughs> and, or, or this is like the best Christopher Guest mockumentary that never got made or something, you know? And it, but it, it, it's like, but it's like the, there's a certain like tragedy on like a Tolstoy level with like what's it, them living in this like ransacked, like, and like you said, you now, you now have given us two documentaries about supremely delusional people. <laughs> Like right. <laughs> to the degree that you, but I think that's what's fascinating is like in that kind of case, these filmmakers, you got to really, it takes a certain skill to make a film about these kinds of people and it not feel like fish in a barrel, right? right. Uh, that you are in some way just, oh, well, this is going to be easy. These people are nut jobs, you know, this, right. this has got this one in the bag, but it's so much more, I think, fundamentally interesting because of how it's made, like how, how it goes, how they go about it. I agree because it, it still, it still gives you enough of these characters to kind of understand a, their history and b you know, where they're coming from at that point in time in the mid seventies. Yes. And to the, you know, and, 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 and you sort of, you sort of connect to them, even though throughout the movie, you're thinking these two are whack jobs. You still kind of connect to them. I think one of the things like Gates of Heaven, like I said, is, is one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Uh, but still Errol Morris is sort of almost looking at it as a, a geek show yes. in a way, yeah, yeah. you know, with the way he's approaching it. The Mazels could have easily done that with this, but yet there's still a little hint of affection for these characters in this film that you don't necessarily get in Errol, in Errol Morris, at least in Gates of Heaven, anyway. True, true. Although Gates of Heaven is also kind of looking at it that, that almost like that phenomena of the pet cemetery, right? Like, uh, Oh, yeah. Well, and, and, and the great thing about Gates of Heaven that I always thought was Errol Morris just took the best footage and put it in the movie, whether it attached to the, to the, to the pet cemetery or not. That's very true. You start to see like, you know, what, what in these people. And I think that's where it gets into some of the fish of the barrel, right? Where there's like, okay, at what point are we just sort of like now looking at these weirdo, you know, like you said, the right, geek show. Right. <laughs> this movie allows them to the extent that they can retain a little of their perceived dignity. 
Right, <laughs> exactly. They they th- if Errol Morris had made Grey Gardens, it would have been a very different film. It, it, would, it might have been too much. <laughs> right. Possibly. But <laughs> this is an excellent movie. Um, it's so good. And they have a lot of great documentaries. I think you point in, like, their concert films are fantastic, like the Monterey yeah. Pop and the Hard Day's Night. And I, didn't they do Salesman? I think so. And Last Waltz. Um, yes, the last. Well, the last waltz I think was directed by Scorsese. Wasn't that was Scorsese it? that did the last waltz. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. And uh, and I think Lester did. Richard Lester did uh, Hard Day's Night. Um, oh, and and did they did? Was it Gimme? Was it Gimme Shelter? Shelter? Was it yeah. was it the Altamont Freeway um, uh, concert? Is that the one they yep. did? Yeah. Uh, uh, Criterion has that one too. Yep. Yep. And that's, 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 you know, that was basically, you know, I said Woodstock, um, you, you had, uh, Criterion released two of the three. They have that great set of the Monterey Pop Festival. That's the one. Yeah. I just met, yeah, that one is awesome. And that was sort of the start of the love generation. Woodstock was the pinnacle of the love generation. And then the Altamont Freeway concert was the death knell of the love generation. But they put these things together. They're so good. Like the films themselves are great. And then they're, these particularly are the ones where you want the special features. And, um, yeah. And on, yeah. A, on a slightly different note, I guess also out in space, uh, for all mankind, they just put it on, on 4K, the, uh, oh, where that's another good all the one. footage yes. of, of the moonland and for me like showing that to my kids and so this is concrete it becomes not concrete to think about oh we landed on the moon it's a thing we did but to see right. it with this footage and they do this brian eno score to it and it makes it very concrete and very real in a way that i just don't think we think about anymore right yeah like, d- despite what that's one segment in room 237 says we did land on the moon well, well yeah the the, the <laughs> joke has always been that yes they hired stanley kubik to film the moon landing, but he's such a perfectionist that he had to go to the moon in order to film it. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so my movie, I wanted to, I did want to find a film that was in 4k that we recently released in 4k uh, to discuss. And actually as a point that we are recording this and uh, by the time this is out that uh, this week 4k, uh, they are releasing Martin Scorsese's raging bull in 4k. And it will oh, be. Yes, I heard that. I yeah. heard about that. That is, that's amazing. And you know, that, that's, I mean, you know, Raging Bull, the fact, you know, when you talk about like Scorsese had two of his films, uh, when, when you're talking the Academy Awards, just get robbed. Yeah. Ordinary People won over Raging Bull and Dances with Wolves won over Goodfellas. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say Scorsese has gotten the last laugh with both of those films. Uh, Oh, he has. Nobody talks about either yeah. one of those movies anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. No one's talking ordinary people or dances with wolves anymore. And I like dances with wolves maybe a little bit more than I like ordinary people. There, there are people. lots of things I like about dances with wolves, but there's plenty of things I don't like about dances with wolves. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's it's sort of it's sort of when it's sort of like the last one that that Costner did that was sort of accepted. After that, what did he do? He did like the the Waterworld, the, the Postman. postman. I, <laughs> hey, I, I'll, I'll actually take Waterworld over a lot of Kevin Costner's movies, but that's a different. <laughs> I actually kind of like Waterworld as well. I, I, there were I, things about that movie that I, I like. It as well. is a big kind of a, a, a massively. Uh, wrong-headed B movie. <laughs> you know, it's right. like it's amazing <laughs> if you don't think about the fact that three hundred million dollars and a lot of people's livelihoods went down the drain. But um, <laughs> so, but my movie's none of those, and it's not Raging Bull either. But you know, I don't own Raging Bull, so that is definitely a must pick up for me. Um, oh yeah, and. The mine, though, is a Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger movie. They had so many movies, and so many of their movies mm. are in the Criterion Collection. And almost every one of their movies, whether they're in black and white or not, 
are beautiful to look at. Um, yes. Black Narcissus, uh, Tales of Hoffman, they just recently released, which is like an opera film that they, they essentially just, yep. you know, made a film of this opera. And it's 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 amazing. This special feature show that both Martin Scorsese and George Romero were heavily influenced by it. And when they would go to the the film library to rent out the like the the you know the the actual film reel so they could take it and view it every time uh, one of them went there he, the, uh, i think it's uh ramiro or scorsese says yeah the the, the other guy's got it ramiro's got it so they didn't know who they were but they knew the ramiro <laughs> kid has got it, it. ramiro's got it when everyone wanted, wanted it the other guy had it and then later they you know these guys go on to make some you know the most influential movies ever made oh but, that's great and even some of the early films, like the Canterbury Tales, yes, yeah, I mean, is a, is a really good film as well, and that they have a lot in the even Michael Powell by himself yes. with Peeping Tom, Peeping Tom, and that kind of destroyed Powell's career, but it's a very interesting film. We have all these it, great movies oh, to review on this show eventually, right? Peeping Tom, yeah, we do. Peeping Tom for me is even a stronger <laughs> proto slasher than Psycho. I I would agree, and that was the thing that came. It's psychologically more interesting. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. but then also Thief of Baghdad is an excellent movie. Uh, um, it is, and, yes. But the one I want to talk about is that had a, a 4K uh, release this year, and uh, as a result, you became the recipient of my old Blu-ray copy, Dave. Was, yeah, thank uh, you. The Red <laughs> Shoes, which I think is. I've said this many times. You guys see, you know, where where my mind is with all these movies is like, you know, everyone, well, this is a psychologically interesting movie and i'm like this is a great looking movie this movie looks wonderful it's a visual feast you know i love movies that give me something maybe i haven't seen before or in a way i haven't seen them and the red shoes is so interesting because first off it is based off of it at a very you know uh tangential level it's based off of hans christian anderson's fairy tale of the red shoes right right and but what they've done is create this backstage drama, essentially, which is this massive Technicolor epic about a ballerina. Uh, and Morishira is this ballerina. She's kind of rising up through the ranks. Uh, excuse me. She's rising up through the ranks, and she's torn between that that thing of, you know, do I do do I want to be this great artist, or am I hell bent and focused on? perfection right and she's torn between people that want to pull her in either direction and this starts to kind of tear at her psyche and in some ways the red shoes which follows her uh you know her obsession and then her commitment and the way that she starts to break down it does that in a very interesting way that blends fantasy and reality and these beautiful ballet sequences and these amazing sets jack card of cinematography i think some of the best cinematography he's ever done and i will tell you there is a significant difference between even the blu-ray and the 4k it's a darker but it's also richer and it just pops in such a way that's like amazing to look at but this film itself is probably one of the best movies I can think of. There, there's several the Criterion Collection has that I think are amazing looks at what it's like to be an artist, like that backstage look at things, or what it's like to be in this particular kind of business. I think of movies like The Sweet Smell of Success. Um, oh my gosh, uh, Bob Fosse's All That Jazz and The Red Shoes. I think those are kind of like quintessential classics. This one particularly. For me, because of the way it looks, I I can sit here and just look at this movie without even having the sound on, and it is fantastic. You wouldn't think a film about ballet could be as engrossing and even as suspenseful as it becomes. Now, 
Later, we had Darren Aronofsky make a movie like The Black Swan, which is very much in the Red Shoes mold, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, uh, and a lot of great special features with this one. There's a lot of stuff on this disc, and they they they've an interview actually with David with uh, excuse me they have an interview with Michael Powell's widow uh, on this. Uh, Thelma Shoemaker, who is uh, who is um, uh, Scorsese's editor. Yep, yep. And so yeah, that was really cool to see. They actually have Jeremy Irons reading excerpts from the novelization of the Red Shoes on here. Wow. So lots of really cool stuff. Do you like this movie, Dave? Have you seen it? I have, and I I do like it. I, I like a lot of Powell Pressburger films. I think A Matter of Life and Death might be my favorite. Oh yeah, I haven't seen that, that they've done. No, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. I like Matter of Life and Death, but I think Black Narcissus is my favorite. There's something about that film, the fact that it was done completely in studio. Right, but it gives you this feeling of being on a mountain. But a you feel as if you're in the mountains of you know in, in the Himalayas. Yeah, you know. The, th- that might be my favorite, but I do like Red Shoes, and it is a beautiful film. It really is. Uh, but that's sort of like the stamp of Powell Pressburger, yeah. you know, and um, Matter of Life and Death has that as well. Uh, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, the, it's a movie that, that takes, you know, anyone who's not familiar with Matter of Life and Death, uh, a character ends up dying and going to heaven. The heaven uh, sequences are shot in black and white, and the sequences on Earth are shot in color, which is opposite of what you would expect. It's very interesting. It's a good. It's a great movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I need to revisit that one. Um, and I think Black Narcissus is my favorite movie of theirs. With this one, very I, it's close. mine as well. Yeah. It definitely is because it's just so. And that for me, that is Jack Cardiff, like as a cinematographer, just doing yeah. what he did best. Because you believe every moment you're watching that movie that this movie was shot on location in the Himalayan mountains, of, you know, in northern India, but yet it was all shot in studio in England. Right, and there's a like some of his cinematography here. There's this dance number in the middle of this film, this very hallucinogenic mm. dance number. That's one of the most like amazing dance sequences I've seen in any film, the way it's performed and the way it's done. And you can sit there and think, well, I don't know why I want to see this movie. It's ballet, right? Isn't that going to be boring? But it right. totally yeah. is not. It's not. It doesn't feel like you're watching a ballet film at all because of the level of tension, I think, that kind of runs through the whole thing. There, there is a level of tension. It's almost like when Bergman did his magic flute. Yeah, yeah, that's not a bad. Comparison. You know, I, I remember sitting there starting that movie. I go, ah, do I really want to watch this? This is like a filmed play in a way, and I don't know how interesting. But it ended up like being fascinating. Yeah, and there, and you, Tales of Hoffman. It's the same way. I don't know if you've seen that one, but you're like, oh, I'm gonna watch a filmed, you know opera what's so great about that and <laughs> then you realize these guys had they they what when they worked together they could achieve this like what they did with the visual look of a film and create these worlds out of out of these stories the the visuals lead and the story follows it, it, it definitely yes and michael powell later on he did some great movies on his own like i said well obviously peeping tom was yeah. just michael powell and he did a really good movie. I want to say in '69 was it with Age of Consent? Yes, yeah. Although with I an early know. role for um, uh, uh, Helen Mirren. Yep. And had James Mason in it, and uh, that's a great movie as well. And it's very interesting because because Michael Powell visited the set of um, After Hours, you know, Scorsese's yeah, movie, and actually movie. gave him the gave him the ending. 
He's the one who sort of recommended the ending of that oh, movie to Martin Scorsese. Which seems like such an odd, like, like when you start writing that film, it seems like you would have that ending in mind. Like, it's that perfect. Right. Like, it's like, so, but you know, I think that movie would be a, like, it, yeah, that's a perfect ending. <laughs> and that's awesome. Yeah. I did not know that. Um, I, yeah, he, he was the one who gave it to him. And it was really Scorsese who brought um, Michael Powell and Thelma Shoemaker together. And they, and, you know, obviously that they ended up getting married. Yeah. It's so funny. One of my, again, one of my favorite Michael Powell stories is Scorsese showed him a movie that was big from his youth, uh, Duel in the Sun, you know, the, um, the, uh, uh, what, what was it? The David O. Selznick produced movie, that Western with Gregory Peck and Jennifer Jones. And it's this big, grand sort of film, but it's really just kind of out there. It's not not a great movie. And there's a scene, I think, where uh, Jennifer Jones and Gregory Peck are shooting back and forth at each other. And, you know, again, Scorsese's showing this to Michael Powell. And there's this great shootout going on. And it's because, uh, you know, again, it meant a lot to Scorsese. He saw it when he was a kid. And so this is like one of the movies of his life. Michael Powell leaned over to his companion and said, it's a pity they didn't shoot the screenwriter. <laughs> but, yeah, that's hard. We have these movies that you kind of have a, you know, an affection for. But uh, right, right, and, and that's uh, you know that's what Scorsese said in Duel in the Sun. You know, he saw it when he was a kid, and um, you know, so it means a lot to him. But yeah, it's not a great movie. Well, and I think I think that uh, the thing is a lot. Most of the, and I do think that Michael Powell's films he made without. Pressburger are different. They're 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 good in their own right, but they have a different feel. I think they, they do. And, and what, was, oh God, what was the one? Oh God, what was the one? Um, oh, with the with the guy who told the tall tales. Oh, the um, Colonel Blimp. Yes, yeah, the life and death of yeah, Colonel Blimp. Right, yes. the life and death. Right, yeah. It's another one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, a matter of life and death. I've definitely. I just put that on my my. Wish list for this time um, because that is a great. That's one of their their great films too. I think it is. I think that one. I still think. I still think with along with you. I think Black Narcissus might be their masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, and you know, but I, I, and I like the Red Shoes a lot as well. It's a beautiful movie. It really is. It's just captivating in a and way. If you don't have that one, I think it's worth the extra five dollars because uh, it's twenty dollars right now on sale. It's twenty. Uh, 25 to get the 4k it's definitely worth it plus right now with their 4k releases they are they give you the 4k and the blu-ray together so that's pretty cool right. so because the blu-ray has nice, all those yeah. special features on it for the most part and uh, i know they just put double indemnity which is another great film not not from those guys uh, but from billy wilder that's all also billy wilder 4K. wow ace in, and they did ace in the hole i think they released ace in the hole um the criterion collection which has quickly become my favorite billy wilder film Yes, that's a that's a that's a great one too. Um, uh, I think Pressburg they did the, yeah. You mentioned Canterbury Tale. That's another good one. I'd recommend it. Uh, is yeah. also in the Criterion Collection. So Trey, what's your next movie? Yeah, and sorry guys, once again, have have not watched either of your picks, but I've at least heard of the Red <laughs> Shoes and know of the Red Shoes. So <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's good. Um, all right. Well, my next pick is Repulsion um, from Roman Polanski from 1965 and that is spine number 483 um now repulsion is the first in that polanski's apartment trilogy quote unquote you know everyone 
back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, had to do a trilogy that were unrelated films and plot. But um, <laughs> but Repulsion's just this cool little black and white story of a woman basically going insane and dealing with all kinds of perceived and maybe not perceived, um, you know, sexual repression and all kinds of different things going on in her head. She's basically left alone in her apartment to her own devices and it doesn't end up well for her. So I think it's a really good um, psychological thriller. You know, this was the one that opened uh, before Rosemary's baby would, he would put out a couple years later. And I think this kind of sets the tone. Um, now, yeah, unfortunately <laughs> there's some things going on with Polanski that don't necessarily, um, give a good legacy to his films. But I think if you haven't seen repulsion, I think it's definitely worth a watch because it is one of my um, favorite of the sixties, as far as like horror thrillers go. And I think it's one that doesn't really get talked about hardly ever. So that's my next bit. Yep. Nice. And I think I have this on, I think this is on Blu-ray. Yes, it is on Blu-ray. Yep. Yeah. And I have the Blu-ray for this one. Uh, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but, um, yeah, I'm with you. You know, the, the, the early Polanski is, uh, you know, it, it's uh, knife in the water and this film, uh, yeah, I, I'm a fan. I definitely am. And even the fearless vampire hunters, I know a lot of people aren't a big fan of that movie, but I love the look of it. Yes. The yes. way that he shot those scenes, uh, in the fearless vampire hunters. I love that one as well. I, I always remember that one. I did another one I saw younger, The Fearless Vampire Hunters. Um, fun fact on that one, The Fearless Vampire Killers. Um, oh, Fearless is, Vampire Killers, uh, right, yeah. I remember reading that um, Cassandra Peterson, uh, you know, obviously Elvira, she's talked about that when she, when they brought her in and she, she basically got, when she auditioned for that role, everyone else was in all their costuming, right? And she wasn't. She kind of got the job without the costuming and then she had a friend of hers or something draw up what she wanted her vampire to look like and her vision was from the fearless vampire killer she wanted this flowing technicolor gown and they're like wow. no you're gonna have the wig you're gonna have the cleavage <laughs> and so, and, so she was the, and, and they went with it and that that was that but i think it's interesting that the the, the image she wanted was from the fearless vampire killers more a more really like cool. yeah. hammer sort of i guess a classier <laughs> classier look nice. a little bit but you know what but i'm i'm with you trey i think repulsion is uh i really want to revisit it Me it's too. been a while since i've seen it but i really want to revisit and Catherine it. Deneuve because at that point she's coming off of like the the, the movies i'd seen her in like some of the like Bunuel movies or the Jacques mm -hmm. Demi movies like umbrellas of cherbourg and to see her mm -hmm. in this like grittier darker and then this black and white photography mm -hmm. that's in repulsion that makes it just uh it's one of the best like person coming apart at the scene yeah. horror films there is yeah complete with i mean i'm sure something you're a fan of nathan i believe and it's been a while since i'd seen this as well but i believe there's a lot of like surrealist type of stuff going on with the imagery and all this stuff there, there yeah. is yeah it gets pretty yeah. um demented yeah so not as good as rosemary's baby but um i think it's a really good well, yeah, and it goes in a different direction. I think the thing about Rosemary's Baby is like when you have all those other people involved, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and and you start to see that there is something happening that that's you know, Repulsion does keep play the game of is it a dream or is it right. not for a very long time? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's more of much more of a smaller contained cast as well. So. All right. Well, my next movie is, um, well, let's just say, how do you follow up what is considered the greatest movie ever made? And I'm talking Citizen Mm -hmm. Kane by Orson for Orson Welles. How do you follow that up? Well, you make a movie called The Magnificent Ambers. Now, the problem, though, with Orson Welles, with The Magnificent Ambersons is Citizen Kane pissed everybody off in Hollywood. <laughs> right? <laughs> he had a contract that he had final cut. He had full control of the movie. And it was about, um, you know, a William Randolph Hearst. Uh, you know, he, in, the, in the movie is Charles Foster Kane, played by, uh, you know, Orson Welles. But it was about Hearst. Hearst was one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. He tried to get that movie crushed. He paid, he offered the studios. The studios offered RKO like millions of dollars for the print so they can destroy it. Um, because one of the things that Hearst threatened to do, because Hearst was a newspaper magnet, which is what, you know, Kane was in Citizen Kane. And he threatened to expose the fact that all of the studio heads were Jewish, which they had changed their names. They were trying to hide the fact that they were Jewish. And William Randolph Hearst threatened to expose that to America if they didn't crush Citizen Kane before it was released in the theater. The problem was Orson Welles had an ironclad contract. He had final cut. He had everything for that movie. They released it as it was, and it is considered one of the greatest movies ever made. The problem, though, is that by Orson Welles basically burned the bridge in his first movie so that every subsequent movie, the studios effed with him every way they could. And that's what happens with Magnificent Ambersons. The Magnificent Ambersons, I was, when I went to, um, uh, I was in college and I went to uh, Temple University. Uh, the Ambler campus, and I was in the RTF uh, class. We studied Magnificent Ambersons like on a uh, scene by scene basis. And you come away with a real respect for it. I got this Criterion Blu ray of Magnificent Ambersons, and I watched it with my wife, and she was enthralled for 95% of the movie until the ending scene. At which point, Wells. The movie had been taken away from him. They reshot the ending to be this sort of this sort of lackluster, happy ending to the movie with Joseph Cotton and I don't know what other characters there were. And my wife goes, "Is that really how this movie ends? Is that it?" And I said, "Yeah, you don't want to get into it." This was the first example of I'm going to say the revenge of Citizen Kane, where the studio just said to Orson Welles, you're out. We're going to do what we want with the end of this movie. Magnificent Ambersons for 95% of the movie is a masterpiece. It is beautiful. It is Orson Welles even expanding on Citizen Kane. Sometimes even surpassing Citizen Kane with some of the scenes until it gets to the final moment in this movie where the studio says, no, we want a happy ending. We're doing it. You're fired. Get out. Here's what we're going to do. And that's what plagued Orson Welles for the rest of his career. Even Touch of Evil, which is another masterpiece, is a flawed movie because it wasn't Welles's full vision. And in Magnificent Ambersons, you see what could have been. 
you see for 95% of the movie, you see what could have been that Wells was this master filmmaker and what he did for most of that movie. You, it is just so beautiful and amazing. The camera moves in certain ways and, and the way he's building the characters, it's great. And then the studio says, nah, we don't like you. Here's the ending. And it ruins it. It ruins what everything, and all, not doesn't ruin everything that came before it, but it damn near ruins everything that came before it. And I don't know if either of you have seen uh, Magnificent Ambersons, but for me, it was like the, the first time that Orson Welles realized, maybe I shouldn't have made Citizen Kane. So I have really, I actually have not, Dave, um, but I am familiar with the film for sure. Um, I can't remember where it came up. It might have came up. I, I don't know when I was doing some kind of episode about a set that was reused or something. But yeah, Orson Welles kind of got railroaded, right? Oh, he did. He got railroaded pretty much for the rest of his career. After Citizen Kane, he made a masterpiece. He made one of the greatest movies ever made, but it cost him a career. It cost him his vision for all of the rest of yeah. his movies throughout his career, unless he went the independent right. route with like Epper Fake and, and uh, what was the one you were mentioning, uh, Nathan? Chimes at Midnight? Uh, Chimes at Midnight, which I think may yeah. be a film, might be his second masterpiece because... He does, and it's in some ways as good as Citizen Kane, but he gets to make it the way he wants to make it because who else right. is going to allow fun? And this is latter day Orson Welles. It's, it's much later in his career. Yeah, what? it's much later Archer on where, where he's not in the studio. He's not yeah. under the studio's thumb anymore. He's independent. Yes. And I think F for Fake is that uh, Mr. Arkadin, which yeah. I don't, my God, but the, 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 the criterion release of this, how many versions of Mr. Arkadin are there floating around out no there? No kidding. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, this is, a, I've seen this, the Magnificent Ambersons is great and they're all great in it. Like Joseph Cotton's great. Agnes Moorhead's great. I mean, it's just a fascinating film. And you're right, though. There's some, like at the end, you get you. It's so Ending clear. Scene, it's so clear that it's studio. It's just like it's like they're saying, "Yeah, we stopped caring five minutes ago." If you really could turn the film off at a certain point, and the and the and the lack of ending would be far more satisfying. Absolutely, if you if you stopped. At like with, I don't know how long the movie is, but if you stop five minutes earlier than the ending, you would be more satisfied than watching the ending that they came up with for Magnificent Amber. Yeah, it's, it's a, and I think part of the mess is even if it wasn't an intentional, like, let's mess with you, there was this idea that, okay, we don't trust you. We don't trust that what you're going to do is going to be what people want to see. But the problem right. is not understanding Orson Welles, which is I don't think they did. And I don't know they gave them much opportunity to do so. Uh when you do something so pat and tack it on to something like this, it's going to look way out of place, right? It's like right. it's like taping a it's like it's it's like taping a child's finger painting on the end of a Picasso. It's like oh, well, no, or maybe Picasso. Picasso a bad example. Like how about a yeah, how about well, a, well, yeah, a Renoir Vinci, or something? Yeah, any other any other artist? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I agree. I agree with you. And 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 but even with Touch of Evil which is a great movie throughout its runtime. I don't know if you ever saw it, Nathan, the, the, the memo 
that Orson Welles sent to them because they took that movie yeah. away from him as That's well. That's the one where Charlton Heston is, 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 plays a Mexican, correct? Yeah, plays a Mexican, <laughs> right. And that great line and what was it? Ed, Ed Wood. Wood. Yes, it's right. Ed Wood, Wood meets up there. with like like Orson Welles. Like, oh, they want me to have you know make a movie with Charlton Heston playing a Mexican. That was, that was Vincent D'Onofrio for a few minutes playing uh, Orson Welles and doing a great right. job. Yeah. But but even in to- the Touch of Evil, they took it away from yeah. him and changed things. He had this memo. He says, at this point, you should do this. At this point, you should do that. Why did you, you know? He, Orson Welles had a vision for it. And the studio changed it. So it's funny because Orson Welles said that a movie, you know, a movie uh, set is like, uh, what do you compare it to? A, a, a toy train for a kid. Yep. It's like the greatest toy train you can ever have. But he only ever got it on his first movie. And by his second movie, it just, you know, he started to realize, wow. Yeah. It's, you know, I wish I had what I had for Citizen Kane. And Citizen Kane is, for all intents and purposes, one of the greatest movies ever made. It is. Yeah, I think it's. I think, but I think he could have made four or five of the greatest movies ever made if he was given the chance to. Uh, yeah, agreed. And and this is almost. This is like you know, like you said, it's like three fourths of of a great. Movie. It really is. It's it's really just that last what five minutes. Yeah. Of Magnificent Ambersons, where you're watching and they tie it up in this, like in this nice little bow, and you're saying, "Well, that sucked." But two, yeah. So two things: Citizen Kane. Um, although uh, there was a great release of it in Blu-ray that Warner Brothers actually sent me back when I was uh, reviewing films, uh, and awesome. I was podcast. sent that same it's, one. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's so good that I don't feel like upgrading. But uh, Criterion did just release uh, Citizen Kane just this year on 4k and so it does have a 4k oh, wow. release and i will say that the other thing is uh and i can't wait and i really hope that we'll get a chance on this on the show to review the film chimes of midnight dave i'm telling you 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 need to see this movie it's uh i want to see it i want to see it because i'm a big fan of f for fake yeah i don't think uh, it's a masterpiece no. i don't think it's one of like wells's greatest movies but i like it no he's trying so many like outsized things f for fake is like that we need to review that one too that's a fascinating film yeah but in yeah. this one, he's play, he's taking Falstaff from Henry V, uh, that character, wow. and he's making the film entirely about Falstaff. But it becomes a big epic with the elements of tragedy, just like Shakespeare. It's also comedic. Uh, I, I sent you the picture. He's wearing, uh, this is, again, Latter-day Wells, around the time he was, like, pimping Californian champagne. So he's wearing right. <laughs> he's wearing this yeah. armor that looks like he murdered a potbelly stove and skinned it. I you saw it. It's like, it's almost <laughs> surreal. It looks like he's on the set of Dune or something, right? You can see why why, why, uh, what, why, um, Jodorowsky, it, uh, uh, Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky him, yeah. yeah, Jodorowsky's Dune, yes. yes. So, I, I, you, you get a better picture of that, but it's a fascinating, it's a very human, uh, portrait of Falstaff, a, who's, who's a side character, right, in all the Shakespeare stuff. And here mm-hmm. he's, and the Merry Wives of Windsor, but here he's front and center. And Wells sees a lot of himself in him, right? Bill Wells is always, you know, he, I think he, he, he's always, um, seen himself with this kind of, the dark tortured artist in here, he's a little bit the fool yeah. and he recognizes it the latter day. And you know fool, what? You know? One movie that I'm, I'm anxious to check out is his Don Quixote. I've never seen that one. Well, I haven't either. I'll be honest. I haven't either, but I have it on DVD. It's like Orson Welles' Don Quixote. Two filmmakers tried to 
tackle that subject, both with disastrous results. And I'm talking about Orson Welles and Terry Gilliam. Yeah, with um, Welles, like particularly movies as a Criterion Collection, you can't, and, and the special features are so fascinating and hearing them talk and, and about them. F for fake is wild. If you don't even know what the movie is, don't read anything about it. Just oh, get it and God, watch it's, it. It's it's like it's like Orson Welles says at one point that I promise to tell the truth for eighty minutes, and it's yeah. a ninety minute movie. And so you know that the ending. But but you know what? Then Welles came out later on and said, "Yeah, the whole movie was made up." Oh yeah, it, it's really F is for effing with you is what it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's what it should have been called. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that movie, Times of Midnight, Magnificent Ambersons, like every everyone was just, even Citizen Kane, masterpiece it is, has flaws in it. I mean, the man was flawed. The movies are flawed, but they are also better than like ninety percent of anything else that was ever made. So exactly because he really did have a vision. Oh yeah, all the you way know, back to like that the War of the Worlds, like that and in that rendition that he did, like all of that, you know. All everything he everything he did, there was something about Orson Welles. Yes, he was a major league egotist. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, you you know, then but every time I see Orson Welles, even in that video on YouTube where he's drunk <laughs> making that Palmason commercial, there's just something mesmerizing about the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember the end of his career, he's like, one of his last roles, and he's like, I was just in the Transformers movie. I <laughs> believed I played a planet that ate other planets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't even know, right? Yeah, yeah, and, it was uncertain. It was so great, he narrated Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1. Yes, yeah, I like, yeah, he's a, quite, quite a character, and all those movies are worth seeing. So now we're into the th territory where I was like, let me see if I can't find some movies that are truly kind of, you know, out there a little bit. And um, I, a movie I just recently saw, and I think it's more recent to the Criterion Collection, is called Ju Judex uh, from 1963. Now it's a French film, so my wife and I were like, oh, that must be Jude. But, you know, in the film, they keep saying Judex. And uh, Judex is actually a. Based is a is a French language film, obviously, but it's a crime film slash kind of superhero pulp hero, and it's a remake of a French serial, well, same name. So the Judex character, which is almost this like master thief, master illusionist. Uh, I think like the Shadow, but a little earlier, right? Uh, or or like a Vidoc, that kind of character. And uh, the the filmmaker that makes this movie, this is 1963, so they're taking a, it's almost like the equivalent would be like when they make the Flash Gordon movie, right? You know, where they go back and they pull this old serial or when they take the shadow again and they're pulling from old serials in 1960, they're pulling from a 1916 film and uh, it's directed by uh, Georges Franjou, who is the director of a, a, a very good, I think French horror film called eyes mm -hmm. without a face. I yeah. Masterpiece. Of seen eyes without a face. Um, very weird, very surreal. Um, plays a lot of weird carnival music with this, with uh, a lot of very kind of uh, German expressionist imagery. But then there's some really creepy scenes of people having their faces <laughs> removed. I mean, great film. Uh, it's also in the Criterion Collection. This one plays with some of the same surreal imagery, but it does so instead of being a horror film, it's in the guise of a uh, almost like a heist crime caper. 
dealing with this kind of masked figure, this master illusionist. And if you saw Eyes Without a Face, then you you know that uh, Franju as a filmmaker is more concerned about the surface look of things and how they feel and the ambiance of them than he is necessarily the acting uh, and, and, and the characters. So he hires this guy, Channing Pollock, who is a stage magician and to play an illusionist to play the the character the judo character and what's interesting about that is he's he's rather wooden as an actor but the stuff that he's able to do and 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 so much of the movie depending upon uh having an illusion as someone that can sort of uh walk in and out of these things and pull off these visual sequences we have no special effects to speak of so we have to have these scenes feel very smooth and watch them uh, kind of flow like a crime caper would flow so it begins with this corrupt banker and he's discussing this blackmail note that's signed by judex has to return the monies he's embezzled it also requires him to do a variety of other things and he's uh he's considering uh what his options are while that's happening we see the wheels are beginning to turn where there is this shadowy figure that's starting to put events in motion, that it begins almost like a Rube Goldberg device. We see one thing happening, another, and the walls are closing in on these criminals who have who have in some way wronged Judex or people that he knows. And so now this figure is sort of turning the tables, wants to uh, right the wrongs, set the accounts in order, uh, what have you. Where the movie becomes really interesting, it kind of becomes insane, is watching how that's done. The opening scene where we're introduced to this character we it pans from the uh, from his shoes upward, and he's in a tuxedo. And then we realize he's wearing a massive falcon head, and he walks into a party that is filled with nothing but people dressed like birds. And he has just picked up a dead like dove and walked into this party. And the, the camera follows him the whole way. There are fights between women in uh, leotards. There are set pieces that it's hard to explain because so many characters are doing different things at, at different times and they all depend on these magic tricks. So imagine a movie like a few years ago, a movie like uh, Now You See Me, where the idea was these illusionists were also going to rob a bank. And and again, they're sort of Robin Hood type characters. It's the same tone of what you expect from a pulp serial. Franju actually wanted to make a Phantomas, which was also a pulp hero from around the same time as the silent film, but he couldn't get the rights to that, so he did Judex instead. And Judex has uh, it's like a wind-up toy. It sort of it goes through all of these different machinations, and you watch it, and you're sort of surprised at how crazy it continues to get. And there are sequences in here that are some of the most interesting I think I've ever seen. But you you watch it to see what's going to happen next. It's a throw the wall and see if it sticks kind of movie. It isn't really deep in characterization, but it's a lot of fun to watch. And if you enjoy those pulpy sort of serialized stories, this is Franju taking a serial and condensing it into a feature length film. And it's only 103 minutes long, so something's got to give. And so what does give is any real sense of logic. But what that means is you have another dreamy, uh, wild ride that, that sometimes feels like a dream, sometimes feels like a nightmare, that is a nice compare, uh, companion piece to Eyes Without a Face. Yeah, that's where you had me, I think, Nathan, because I do really enjoy that movie. 
And that just <laughs> the that just sounds so interesting what you're saying with uh with Judex about the whole it's kind of like a superhero type serial <laughs> thing. It just I don't know, for some reason that's just clicking in my brain right now. I know it sounds really weird too, so who knows <laughs> what I'll end up thinking of it, but <laughs> I yeah, think, I, and I've never seen this one, so yeah, I'm I'm anxious to see it as well. I highly, I highly recommend it, and it's again nice. great special features here. If you ever saw the movie Irma Vep that uh, Olivia Sayas did later, yeah, Billy Wilder movie. No, 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 yeah, uh, no Oliver Sayas. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. With that one, Maggie Chung. I'm thinking her. Irma LaDouche the first time. <laughs> you said it, but yeah, Irma Vep. Yeah, with Oliver Sayas. Yes, and and you remember that in that film, uh, Maggie Chung character, she's she's uh, doing like a remake of a. Uh, of an old serial film for the same right. makers of Judex, they were less vampires. And in this one, uh, there is a character that shows up that one of the female sort of uh, thieves is wearing the black cat suit that is almost identical to the one that Irma Vep wears. So you're getting wow. into this kind of wild, pulpy ride. And I'm telling you, Dave, just to see this, if you anybody look up this scene on YouTube involving the bird head, I'm talking like a full blown, like. Feathers, yeah, I think he sent that like to me, a, the picture. A humanoid wow. bird. And he walks into this party where everyone else is also dressed like birds. And they all interact as if they're birds. And he's carrying live, both dead birds that then seem to miraculously resurrect <laughs> in his hands. And there's no context for where this scene fits initially. So you're putting all this together. But it is a wild ride. I highly recommend it. Definitely worth the, uh, particularly right now in the sale, the 20 bucks to just uh, give it a whirl. Nice. Okay, Trey, your next movie or your last yeah, movie, right? My That's last one, and it's I think the newest one that I own. Um, I think it spines number ten seventy three. So it's the most recent one that I have picked up as far as like the timeline, um, and that is Bong Joon Ho's Memories of Murder. Oh, and Memories of Murder is it? You know, if you've ever seen a Bong Joon Ho movie they all have about the same vibe and tone where it's just incredibly goofy and um off the wall kind of in the first third of the movie and then as it keeps going on it starts getting more serious and you get a lot of heart kind of thrown in there at some point and they all kind of follow the same basic premise but or not same premise but same like setup or logic and uh, this one's just really cool it's about some uh, it's about some police detectives who are trying to find this serial killer almost and going about it in not necessarily the most uh, straightforward ways, as you would think. And, the, you know, they get this city cop that comes in because they're kind of out in a smaller town. And it's just the the clashing of their styles as one is doing real detective work and one is kind of uh, doing more of a torture type thing. But um, it's a really cool, fun movie, a really quirky movie. And honestly, um, Bong Joon-ho is really a solid director. I mean, I I don't think I'd give anything of his below like an 8.5. I really do enjoy all of his films. Um, so, yeah, this one was uh, really I didn't even realize it was a criterion until recently. So um, I jumped on that one and I jumped on the opportunity to add that one as my last film. Very cool. I like this one a lot. And uh, I I think the first one I saw of his mm -hmm. was The Host. I remember seeing that well before it was released here. And, you know, big fan of monster movies, so I really enjoy that. But at, like, 
shortly after seeing it, I tracked down Memories of Murder and was really impressed by it. It's a very, very good movie. Well, and I'll be honest, I have not seen this yet. I actually have the Blu-ray from Criterion, but I have not see it, seen it yet. So I'm anxious to check it out because I'm a big fan of the host. I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. Parasite. Yeah. You know, so this is one yeah, I he's definitely kind of flung into more of the mainstream with Parasite um, recently. But right. yeah, Dave, and honestly, I think the host might even or maybe mother might even be my least favorite of his. And it's still an 8.5 or something. So so I just love wow. his movies. And, yeah. And mother yeah, mother's and like, another great um, one. Yeah. Okja even which that's got I think that released right with its Criterion release. That just yeah, it just came out like Okja. recently on Criterion. Yes. It's a good movie. And of course, he did yeah, and he's got another one coming up. That's supposed so. to be this sci fi type thing based on a novel. So it sounds pretty sounds pretty cool. I'm in for anything with him. At this nice. point. Yeah. Awesome. The thing that strikes me about him, it strikes me about Memories of Murder that makes him, uh, that's the thing about Korean cinema, and I think we've talked about this, and Dave, I know you and I have talked about it, is the way they can meld humor, like Mm -hmm. goofball humor, like, like, like Keystone Cops humor in the same movie with some dark, dark stuff, like with some seriously like downbeat stuff. Yep. Is impressive. And it seems like there's always that turning point yep. in the movie where you're like, okay, this is getting real, or this is going to make me cry, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is in his films. Right. But yeah. yeah, very cool. Okay, and uh, how about your final movie, Dave? All right, my final movie, and uh, this is another director who is well represented in the Criterion Collection. And we're going back to 1939. It is Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game. Such a great movie. It it really is. And I reviewed this film, God, over uh, back in August of 2011 on the blog. And I'll just sort of go over the first couple paragraphs here. I think it's safe to say that director Jean Renoir was, uh, well, surprised by the initial audience reaction to his now classic film, The Rules of the Game. On July 11, 1939, The Rules of the Game premiered at the Paris Colisée with Renoir and other members of the cast and crew in attendance. Halfway through the film, the audience started to whistle and boo, with one patron actually attempting to set his seat on fire as a form of protest. (laughs) While it may seem harmless today, for an audience in pre-World War II France, this film was downright scathing. The mood in Europe was growing darker by the day, and France chose to shield itself behind a patriotic furor. The rules of the game dared to show a French aristocracy that was complacent, even somewhat bumbling in nature. It was not how the French saw themselves, and certainly not how they wanted the rest of the world to see them. Yet, when you watch the rules of the game... It is so engaging. It is so, it's lighthearted. It's witty. It's whimsical. Uh, It's a fun movie. You see why the French might have been upset. There are moments in this film where it's treating these sort of upper class French uh, individuals as bumblers, as morons, you know, as people who are constantly like, um, cheating on their spouses and looking for the next great uh, conquest. And it, it's one of those type of films. I mean, marriage in this movie takes it on the chin. <laughs> you know, the, the, it's, it's almost like the vows of marriage mean nothing to the characters in this movie. 
Um, and and you get that sort of throughout the film, but it's lighthearted. It's a fun movie. Um, and for me, you know, when I think of like Renoir's great, great films, and he's made a lot of them. He has. I yeah. like The River in the, what was in the 50s? He made The River. The River is an excellent film. It yeah. is. It's a great movie. Um, obviously, um, uh, what is it? Grand Illusion, which is spy number one for uh, the Criterion Collection, is a great movie. I think Rules of the Game is right up there with them as one of Renoir's best. And Renoir himself plays a role in the movie. He doesn't just direct, he plays a role in the movie as well. I really like this film. Um, so yeah, that's that's my sixth and final entry uh, for this episode. Yeah, this is a masterpiece film. I think it's... Uh... And he's got, as you mentioned, he has so many to his name yeah. of of just great, great movies. And uh, Budo Saved from Drowning is is a great. Yeah, that's film. the one I want to check out because because that was remade in the eighties by Paul Mazursky as Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Yeah, which is also a good movie. It, I love good Down movie. and Out in Beverly Hills. I absolutely love. But it. he's on Diary of a Chambermaid. Uh, it was a good movie, and the uh, Rules of the Game is probably. His best one, The Golden Coach, is excellent too. He did yeah. that one at fifty two, and right. um, uh, the river. I really like the river, the one that you mentioned. Uh, I do too. I like that one a lot. Stunning. Yeah. Uh, I think that also has Criterion, but it's so many, many, many films, and um, a, a great filmmaker. And the thing about Rules of the Game, and it, it, you know, people who haven't seen it, you've seen this sort of thing. It does have that sort of like. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of the upstairs, downstairs elements to it. There's the kind of um, that upper class drama that you'd expect to see in something like a Downton Abbey. But then with it's the satirical element. It's that element of like these right. are just, the, you know, you mentioned like it's not just that they're like buffoons. They're seen as as willfully disconnected. Yeah. Like they've disconnected themselves not just from the world around them, but for many of their responsibilities to anything, there's no responsibility to my country. There's no responsibility to my spouse. There's no responsibility to my neighbor. I just don't care. I'm going to keep my head in the sand. And then it's becoming increasingly hard to do because of what's happening you, in the you film. You see that with that aviator. Yeah. The aviator accomplishes this great thing, but he did it for a woman. And when she's not there to greet him, he doesn't want to have anything to do with the people congratulating him. Yeah, and it, it surprisingly holds up so well for a movie that's so kind of focused on a specific time. Like, you know, it's aiming a very specific audience, right? Like, his criticisms were very specific. It's just why they got pissed. Yeah. Right. And yet, it still has a universality to it as a film that we can watch. Um, it is not being French people from the 1930s, and you still, it still has something to say. Yeah. I agree. But um yeah, love love the film. I think that's to me uh rules of the game is one of those essential like if I had to like pick like 10 movies of the criterion and like ship them to everybody, you know, it's like the if I right. could send you 10 10 films to film school or something, you know, like sponsor a film student and they could send you a 10 criterion movies, that would be one of them. Can I, I apply think. for that? I'm with you. I think it would be for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've already sent you. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't get the. You didn't get the criteria once you got Friday the Thirteenth. Sorry. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, um. Anyway, my so my final movie is probably not 
one that would be in the, uh, you know, would probably not be the first group of films I would send somebody, but uh, I I just recently saw myself. It is called Marketa Lazarova. And now you're today, you're probably like, Nathan, you're just making things up now. But uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's got a reputation as being one of the greatest Czech films ever made. And uh, it's director, Francis Aglacil's movie, which is based off of a, of a novel, um, is really, really interesting. It is a, I, you know, they kind of couch it as an experimental action film. I think that's about right. It is a medieval film. It takes place uh, with these two rival clans, and it is a battle, really, between Christianity and paganism. You see these two medieval clans, uh, and then in the midst of this, there is also the rule of the land and the and the the, the uh, king that's involved in this. And so you see different. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this without getting too deeply into the film, because most of this takes place in a medieval wilderness in a sort of really craggy, desolate world. And, you know, medieval films, particularly Hollywood medieval films, always seem to have a certain level of, like, uh, fantasy in the sense that things look a lot cleaner than they really would have been. This is one of those dark, gritty, folky movies that, uh, you know gets right down to it. We see a group of noblemen that are traveling through the woods and they're, they're beset upon almost instantly. And it's not long before we realize this is a very gritty sort of, uh, uh, dark film that deals with a lot of, uh, but the reality of living in the middle ages in the middle of a feuding land would have been like when idealism, uh, sort of morphs into brutality. And there's a lot of brutality. This is almost like you're watching Game of Thrones. It's got two groups of people that are continually raiding and ransacking each other's villages and uh, and homes. And they're constantly at war with the... Uh, with, with the king and with the, and with the king's soldiers. And so you have this film... That is, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the uh, what the actual year was that the film was made, 1967. But it's, again, made um, with Czech actors and with really very little budget, so to, to speak of. And yet the way the battle scenes are filmed with these people trying to fend off this attack. So when this regiment has come in and is planning to invade one of the uh, one of the kind of holdouts, this this isolated area where one of the two clans lives. When they are attacking, it's just people running up hills with spears while this crazy choral music plays in the background. This very haunting, escalating music. It's almost, Dave, like you're watching scenes from like Borman's Excalibur uh, if it were made by a bunch of uh, crazy people in the mud with <laughs> sticks. And wow. it, But it's intensity. It's like that. You know, the grittier scene sequences of Excalibur, a movie like yeah. Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood. Or, you know, if I had to... Think of what this is like. Imagine if you took some of the intensity and the tragic nature of the Kurosawa samurai films and you mix them with the the the, the kind of um, dour spirituality of a Bergman movie and that feel of Bergman's medievalism and movies like The Seventh Seal, and then mix in Tarkovsky, and then you take those three and blend them together, and this is a movie that approaches that. It's a big historical epic. It deals with this character, Marquetta Lazarova, which is the very center of this. She belongs to one of the two clans, but then everything that you can imagine comes in the middle. You have 
brigands and thieves. You even have a backstory that's told through a, a, a child's fairy tale to these children that suggests that possibly that the lineage of one of these uh, clans can be tracked back to a werewolf. So that was wow. a that was a bit of a surprise. And uh, there there is brutality. There are. Uh, so many different characters to keep track of again in that kind of Game of Thrones area where everyone's going to end up dead possibly and if you're not dead maimed and if you're not maimed maybe you ended up with your sister so it's hard <laughs> to know where things are going to fall but it's an intense movie what's interesting is that they don't really fill you in on who everyone is up front you learn specific important <laughs> Like, even uh, basic sketch details about a character, maybe 40 minutes after you met that character earlier in a previous scene, it's almost particularly or specifically disorienting, and yet it's utterly fascinating. I watched it, and I thought, I'm going to have to see this again, and I'll have to see it again after that. The cinematography is beautiful. You, you know, even though it's not a horror film, it has very much that feel of a film that would have been perfectly at home on the Severance uh, full car box set that they released uh, this past year, it, it it puts you right in the in the headspace of what it must be like to be a medieval villager in this time frame, and that's a very hard thing to do. Dave, did you see a movie, or Dave or Trey, have you seen a movie called November that was really Estonian movie released yes, years ago? Yes, I, I did see November, and that's a crazy film. The one where they um uh they created like uh, what, what the crats, the, the crats, the, yes. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot because, you know, you're watching this film and you're kind of like, what the hell am I watching here? So if you want the sister of that film that's slightly more reasonable because there are no crops <laughs> or whatever those things were, that's this film. That same nice. folky feeling that, like, if a, if, if a bunch of video villagers were given a video camera and made a movie, it would look like <laughs> this. That's what this is, and yet yeah. it is... Uh, it's it's masterpiece filmmaking. He's done a couple of other films that take place around the same time. I never even heard of this movie before. Uh, and the scenes of the there's always at the cent, at the at the focal point in the film, you always have the main characters, and they're usually like staring off like you have in a Bergman film. But in the background of every shot, there are just wolves dotted along the horizon line in almost every single shot to remind you that at any moment you could be eaten. In addition to all your other problems, Nathan, I remember wow. you talking to me about this one how how long is this movie because it seems like there's a ton of stuff going on oh yeah well that's what the 165 minutes are okay for. it was 165 minutes okay <laughs> it's good but here's the thing it'll probably end up being like you know 190 minutes because you'll probably have to stop it. it and run it back <laughs> and figure out what what character you just saw get killed and were they killed and wait a minute is that his <laughs> sister or not but it's I, and I, I don't know if you guys feel this way. There are some movies that feel convoluted and frustrating when they do that. And there are some movies that are actually feel more interesting in a way when they mm -hmm. do that. Because it, it, this movie kind of, ultimately you won't be doing what I just said. You won't be going back and looking because you'll sort of be sucked into it as a, an experience. And it's a sensory thing. And so you start to realize that all these little historical details don't really matter if everybody is dead and bleeding in the mud at the end of the day. So you just sort of go with it. Nice. But um, a big recommendation, particularly if you are someone who really likes these sort of big uh, historical epics, but wants to see it done from a different perspective. And if you're a big fan of Tarkovsky and Bergman, I say this is a must own. Oh, wow. That's that's high praise indeed for both directors. Yeah. Yeah. And it's is it as good as their best? It is. It isn't. But it's so fascinating that uh, it's a definite it's a definite must see. Nice. 
So yeah, I think they're 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 titles that if you pick them up, I don't think you'd be disappointed. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. some of them are a little more out there than others. I think if you if if you stick with like Twelve Angry Men, if you have if you haven't really gotten criteria for Twelve Angry Men, I think um, I think the the red shoes and rules of the game are all pretty uh, pretty safe starting mm-hmm. points. Um, <laughs> and, and and I'd say Anatomy of a Murder too, and then. Um, yep. But if you're looking for something a little bit more experimental, I think we've thrown some some good uh, choices out there as well. And um, the documentaries, man, like I say, the Idi Amin movie is insane. This is Great Gardens. Um, it, it is because because especially because of his character, you know, because of him. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, and the way he's acting in that movie, you know, he's he's almost as if he's portraying a comedic version of himself, but taking himself completely seriously. That's a good way to see it because he sees himself as a, as a wise, like man of the world. And he doesn't, right. And it is not what he is. He's a murderer. And it, I mean, that, that sequence where he's talking about like invading uh, Israel, the Golan Heights yeah. or whatever. And he's saying, I've, I put together this plan and there's what two dozen soldiers. Yeah. Mel Brooks couldn't have written this guy as, as satirically right. <laughs> as he perceives himself and that's what's scary that's what's scary because this man was in, in a position to take lives and take a he, lot he of was them. and you just realize how crazy he he really was and it's and it's the road that i think it's the road that all who are too self self-obsessed with their image you know this is the extreme but it's a it's a, it's a good reminder why not to be a narcissist <laughs> If you can help right. it, if you can help it, uh, very quickly, I did just want to take a couple seconds, um, couple minutes, I guess, and uh, throw in any because we didn't do too many of the box sets. I wanted to kind of because the box sets do get more pricey, and I wanted to throw out so these were all individual titles for the most part that we chose. Um, anything that you guys want to talk about in regards to, and just a couple, you know, even just a couple lines or something about uh, any box yeah, sets. I, definitely, I, I want to throw out. Um, uh, the two Kieslowski yes. box sets. They have the Decalogue and the, the uh, Three Colors trilogy. Both of them, I think, are, are amazing. And even though it's it's one movie, I can't recommend more strongly Shoah. Yes, yeah. That's a heavy watch. <laughs> it's nine <laughs> hours. It's like a nine-hour-something documentary about the Holocaust. But it is so fascinating. That's like an essential and viewing. It's just you have to it figure is. out when I you're going to view it. Essential viewing, and I, I think it was Gene Siskel who put it like uh, that year. He put it like as one of his top films. And it's yeah, it's like nine hours long. But my God, is it? It is. It's engrossing. You know, you're you're kind of watching this movie about the Holocaust, about these people, and what they went through. It really is just a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating motion picture. And for me, I, even though it's one movie, that is sort of presented as a box set that uh, Criterion came out with. Yeah, I think it's like a, I think right now you can get it for like 50 or something. Um, and hmm. the thing is, but it's worth it. It's a, it's a, or it might be 40, I'm not sure, but it's, it's whatever it is. It's, um, I always struggle with the, narrative films involving the Holocaust, even a film like Schindler's List, it's always List, difficult yes. to mm-hmm. uh, look at a movie and 
think that you're really capturing this. You know, it's always, you know, in most cases you're dealing um, with fiction. And so what's mm-hmm. fascinating about the show, because it's a documentary, I think it is the best film I've seen about the Holocaust uh, because of how powerful it Put is. It right up there with, what was the other, what was the one, the guy, oh God. Um, oh, I can't remember the director's name now. He did it um, when he was going after Klaus Barbie. What the hell was oh, that movie? Oh, come on. Um, it was a French film. I don't even remember who it was who made it, but it was a, like um, uh, it sort of delved into the same. Uh, 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 Hotel Terminus. Terminus. Yes, there it is. Yes, oh, Hotel we got Terminus. It at the same time. That's what it was. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's that's a, another long film about uh, not. It's not necessarily about um, the Holocaust, like Shoah is, but it touches on it. Yeah, it's kind of Nazi hunting, and it's dealing with this, yeah, it this is it's Nazi, Nazi hunting with House Barbie, the butcher, another lion, great yeah. documentary. And who is it? Marcel Ophuls is he the one who made Marcel Ophuls is the director of uh, Hotel Terminus. It was right there on the tip of my tongue the whole time. We got so we pulled it. Yeah, at the same I, time. I couldn't remember it, but I saw that. I rented that on video back in the very late eighties or early nineties. Would have been late eighties because it was made in eighty eight. Yeah, so it had to be the early yeah. 90s, I think, when I finally saw it, and it blew me away. And when I finally got it on DVD, I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And it, it blew me away again when I saw it. I think that Hotel Terminus and Showa would make a great double feature, even though you know, Hotel Terminus is more about Nazi hunting, going after this yeah. guy, Klaus Barbie. Of course, with a nine-hour film, you might not need a double feature. Yeah, you don't need a double feature necessarily, <laughs> but if you have a yeah. if you have an entire after an entire day to shoot, because I want to say Hotel Terminus is damn near three and a half hours itself. Totally, yes, it's um, yeah, it's a long so film. but but both of them are fascinating. I think both of them are fascinating movies. Hotel and Showa is broken off into what four chapters? Yeah, yeah, it's it's got some. Uh, delineation points where you could stop and yeah well you could sort of like and i think that's how i watched it yeah. in four different chapters um i don't know that hotel hotel terminus has that same uh i don't remember but, honestly no but i think if you watch hotel terminus and showa you know sort of in in uh succession it's an amazing experience yeah, and a couple, a couple I want to talk about. Some I just gotten. Well, I just got the Decalogue. Ba- like I movie I've been waiting to get for a very long time, and just you know, every time the sales come up, it was like, oh, there's always something else. And uh, Davey finally convinced me. We were talking the other day to to go after the Decalogue because I love the three colors, the Kozlowski's three yeah. colors. It's a masterpiece, must own in my opinion. Some of the best movies ever made, and. The Decalogue, from what I understand, being you know, you, you, I think you have to get into it if you need ten hours about a, a film made. It's, it's, documenting right. it's like the one ten hour episode <laughs> on each of the Ten Commandments. I yeah. want to say, yep, and uh, yeah. But every but every single person who's talked to me has said it is a masterpiece. It's like a must. I've so. seen all of them, and there's not a single one of them that I I wouldn't recommend. So, um, how does it stack up to the three colors? Because to me, three colors is like a you know, like the high benchmark of like how that. Can... Uh, you know what? It's funny because I, I and I'm with you. I think the three colors is is you know amazing, and the one I think prefer the most is blue. Yes, yes, I yes. like blue, and red is the one that's considered sort of the masterpiece of the three. And red is a great movie. I like white as well. 
Well, white white me, is very blue yeah. is the one that really grabbed me. I, blue is the one I love the most. I agree. I think blue is the most immediate of the three in terms of the drama, like right off the bat, like the yeah. first time you watch them. I think the trick is even with white is that they all do work better together in a sense, even though they aren't really that connected. Except yeah. the characters walk in and white out. White is the more comedic of the three, but there's I more think. going on under the surface of all of them than it appears. Yeah. I think red is the one that has the most like emotional connection like i think that's the one that is the closest to being traditional drama blue is Mm -hmm. devastating um and just the way in which you see things like even the opening like but the way he constructs things i'm just so excited to see this the decalogue um oh let's see i I recommend it because i think as much as i love the three colors trilogy i think the decalogue might be even a little bit better and i'm anxious to hear what you have to say about it yeah i'm really looking forward to seeing it um you know, as far as things are working, I just got something. I'm super excited. My family, they got me um, for, they. it was a kind of a, it was like a belated Father's Day gift that they went with. They were with me. I was getting, I was going through the Criterion movies at Barnes and Noble and my son goes through and he comes to my wife and says, we have to buy this for dad, apparently. And this is like right up his alley. And he was totally on point. Apparently knows me very well because he gave me the, they gave me this movie. It was the, it was a fanta- Three Fantastic Journeys by Carol Zeman. Now, I don't know why mm. I would have bypassed this movie because the cover of it has a hot air balloon, a steamship dirigible, and a brontosaurus in a collage-looking <laughs> cover that then is clearly like multiple layers to it. I think I sent you guys pictures of this. I don't know if you saw it or not, but like yeah. inside yeah. of it, yeah. uh, so there were three movies, and one was like Journey into Time or something, and then The Adventures of Baron Moonchild, or the, you know, it was something, The the Adventures of, The Adventures of Baron Moonchild is the, mon- the, the Gilliam film. This is a right, similar right, title, right. but it's a, an earlier made film. And then there was uh, a third movie that was very, uh, had like a steampunk veneer to it. And the and uh, again a Czech filmmaker who played around a lot with different materials of special effects at the time. So the one film is very much in the Harryhausen vein. You have these like uh, like Boy Scouts that go on this like uh, travel down a river and they encounter all of these stop motion creatures like mastodons and dinosaurs wow. and and all sorts of prehistory in in pretty interesting i mean they're not harryhausen level per se but very interesting sort of uh stop motion special effects and the whole mood of the film is interesting it feels like some kind of film strip i would have watched in like you know the second grade or something that they pulled out of a dusty <laughs> corner somewhere and there's something fascinating and amazing about it because it's the handmade special effects that sort of grab you and that movie which would have been the one that for me would have said okay you know i i saw that and i said yep i need this because anything involving stop motion dinosaurs but then the second movie here is called invention for destruction and it is a wild collage of actors along with uh with, with sort of the back piece sets all look like big moving pieces, like a George Melies. But then on top of that, there are just drawings and animations. And it's it, it resembles something like, I don't know if you, the, the music videos that like Monsters and Men did uh, back in the day, uh, these weird collages mm-hmm. of, of images or something like the 
the uh, Smashing Pumpkins video for tonight where they're, you know, they're going through all these silent films. Yeah. That was supposed to evoke Meliace. This is like Meliace taken to a whole nother level. The fabulous Bear Moonchild's made in 1962. the third movie. And what is wild is when you see the Gilliam movie, which I'm a fan of. I know some people think it's a train wreck, but I think it's mostly because Gilliam sunk so much money into it when you see how weird that film is with robin williams flying head going around the moon and like right and, it's a very strange film but i'm with you i like that one a lot it as is well. but he's riding cannonballs and all this stuff seems so wild and it's like only gilliam yeah. could have conceived this then to watch this 60s film and realize that all that stuff's already in there <laughs> this guy already made it gilliam is on the special features of this film talking about this guy I mean, he's clearly wow. a big fan. And and that's what it looks like. Okay, so this, you know, I'm sitting there looking for the obvious comparison. A lot of this guy's films, the other two films that aren't the dinosaur one, they look like the Monty Python Flying Circus, like animations. They have that kind of vibe. But imagine real the actors. The old Terry Gilliam animation yes. for that with, with like the cutouts. I, this that's guy awesome. was clearly a huge inspiration, I think, on Gilliam. And there are three full films here. They're all very cool. Now, they're definitely, you know, you're not going to watch these for the drama, but you're going to watch them to see. You remember, uh, I remember, Dave, you texted me when you were watching The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, the films that yeah. had the, the the silhouettes cut out and they, the animation. It's like those films. You're just amazed that these things exist. Wow. And uh, to me, this is a must-own for anyone who loves animation, who loves special effects, and who loves that kind of the tinkering wizardry aspect that we don't get a lot of because everything's done in computers, right? So right. watching this, just watching these films to me was far more fascinating than watching like, you know, a, a sequence from Transformers or something. It was just kind of uh, awe-inspiring. <laughs> and Criterion, try in an effort, I guess, to sort of capture this, has made the 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 actual like interior of the of where the discs sit, the booklet folds out, and each of them has a pop up. So you actually have the mastodon pop out of one of the pages, and then you have Gilli uh, you have a uh, Gilliam, you have Munchausen riding the the cannonball. Actually, he moves from side to side as you open the flap, and uh, so it's very cool. I highly recommend it. It's a lot of neat special features on here, uh, and it's it's cool to see how this guy works. It's not somebody I was even really aware of, but he's very clearly very influential on the likes of Terry Gilliam and. Uh, Tim Burton. So if you're fans of Burton or Gilliam, this is a must own. The, the films that this guy has made look like they popped right out of those the, the minds of those guys. That's really cool. And you know what? I want to see um, back in the um, uh, the Nazi era of Germany, they made a Munchausen film. Yes, yes, they did. Produced by, you know, d during Joseph Goebbels. You know, which mm. is unfortunate. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of movies yeah. made at that time. They made a Sherlock Holmes movie. They made a movie about the Titanic, uh, German, and they made a Munchausen film. And I'm anxious to check them out because even though it has that sort of uh, Stain, stigma, yeah. you know, harboring over yeah. them, that it was done during the Nazi era, um, the Titanic film. The special effects were so good that when they made A Night to Remember in Britain in the in the later 1950s, they used the special effects from the Nazi-era Titanic movie because they couldn't top it. Wow. And I know they did a version of Munchausen as well, and I'm anxious to check that out. I haven't out. seen that one. I'm aware of it. I haven't I've either. I haven't yet heard either. heard of this one. But yeah, I think this would be right up your alley, Dave. Journey to the Beginning of Time is the first film 
Uh, and if you're nice. somebody, I didn't really throw out a lot of titles here tonight, but if you're someone who's who would love to pick up uh, some of these films for like a younger um, film fan or, or, or a film for kids, this is this is the set to do it. It's a uh, it's astounding. It's the kind of thing that I think is. Uh, perfect because I think they will be into these stories and uh, Invention for Destruction just such a, a unique, the way the film is made is so unique and all three of these mm -hmm. movies I plan to return to them, plan to return to them with my kids and uh, it does prove to me that I've apparently given my family a pretty good idea of what I'm interested in because they, they something <laughs> I must have passed by 17, I don't know what I thought it was, I don't I just don't know, I don't know, I must have just was so busy you didn't see the pop I, Well, it had the on. dinosaur. I think I thought it was just like collage <laughs> art. I didn't realize they were like older films. And so uh, it, my son was like, I told you. I was like, yeah, you, you one of my favorite <laughs> releases I've gotten recently. So um, before the before trilogy is a great, uh, great one to have. Um, Richard Linkletter's movies with the Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Uh, and those three films uh, and seeing those, it's funny because, you know, I think I was at the age kind of perfect age where it was a little bit younger, but you know, as those movies came out, you could relate a little bit more to them and a little bit more to them. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's an achievement in and of itself. I think Link Letters done a lot of that kind of stuff, right? Films that you just are astounding existed like boyhood, like mm -hmm. uh, what he, the lengths he's gone to, to make some of these films. So that's well, um, one that I am still need to see the, the Apu trilogy is I hear that's great. Um, oh, that's another good one. Yeah, I had that one on DVD, and I know that they. I actually have the Criterion um, uh, set of that, and it's been so many years. I'm, I mean, it must be 16, 17 yeah. years since I've seen it, but I remember loving it. I remember loving that entire trilogy. And I, I want to get back to that. And a lot of the, I've got one of the sets that's really cool that's out there. I just have the first one, uh, Morton Scorsese's. Um, the uh, I want to get the title of this. Oh, right. the, the world, world, uh, world cinema project. World cinema project. Yes, I have all three. I have the the three that have been out, and there's a fourth one coming. And they pick a lot of very interesting films. I get, oh, he and and he introduces all of them. It's yeah. so cool. I haven't watched. You know, and it's from all over the world. You have Africa, you have um, uh, uh, you know, Korea, uh, Japan. Yeah. It's it's from literally all over the globe. All three of these volumes that have been released already, and I know there's a fourth coming. Um, it, it's it's just it's really something. I'm you know Tuki Buki, I think is the one that I saw. It's a really good movie. I just watched that. It one. is. So I good. really like that. I like that film a lot. But The Handmaiden, I think, is the one. It's a horror. I film. can't wait. To, well, I saw the remake. Yeah, oh, is that the yes, Korean? The, one? I think it's Korean. Yes. yes. It's it's mm -hmm. no. The Handmaiden came out in um, that one's from like the two thousands. I'm talking this is back a black but, and white. This film is, I think, this is all, but this is the film that one was based off of. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. I think it was in, yeah. inspired that one. And Dos Monjics, I think, is the um, is the is the um, uh, was it Mexican? I'm not sure, but horror film. Yes, the, uh, Dos Monjics is is another one that Scorsese put. I don't on think that. it's on those sets, but there's they also did the Phantom of the Monastery. Is that same filmmaker? And those are yeah. very cool movies that um, I think that's set too. But yeah, there's some great, um, great stuff on those. And you get about six films every time out. And I'm probably yep. going to go and pick up the other two. Uh, the Bruce Lee collection, like I mentioned, that's an excellent set. Um, if you're into that's a great films. one. The, the Godzilla, what is it? The Showa era? Yes. So many movies it's, in it's that. That's awesome. another yep. That's another one of those, the big, you got to be ready. 
<laughs> like you're yeah, ready to right. get it. It's like a, <laughs> yeah. Um, Where's the bird to put it? And for one, the for the Bergman one is amazing. And for one, for years, I've been meaning to pick up, and I finally got it maybe about six, seven months ago, is the John Cassavetes. Uh, yeah, I've been, I'm going back that and That was forth. a very early box set that they put out, yeah. and it has, like, A Woman Under the Influence, which I think is a great movie. But it's the ones I want to see, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, uh, and some of the other films that, that uh, Cassavetes did that I really Shadows, am anxious to see. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, lo- I do, I love... Um, uh, a woman under the influence. I think it's. A, I think it's a great film. Yeah, I've seen most of them. I think, and I don't have that one. But he's a, he's a great filmmaker and uh, yep. a very um, influential filmmaker too. And the Killing of Chinese Book is very interesting. I'm curious to hear your thoughts when you finally see that one. Yeah, I, I, that's um, the one I want to see. And, and yeah. one I think that I saw that you sent us a picture of your collection. I saw that I got was the um, uh, America Lost and Found. That is yeah, a, that's a great a one. great collection of movies from Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, had the 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 movie that the uh, monkeys and uh, came together and made is a very interesting sort of uh, that that is film. and it's funny because I remember I grew up with the TV series of the monkeys, which is where they originate, right? So it's a it's a fake band that turned into a real band, and <laughs> you know that they they came together, but it's you know it's it's BBS, you know Burt Schneider and 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 everyone, but. What's really interesting is if you watch the TV series, there's one name in the TV series credited as like a creator that I never quite, I never made the connection. I grew up watching the monkeys when I was a kid. I watched that monkeys TV show all the time. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah. Was one of the guys who helped create the monkeys. I think Nicholson is in, He's related to every he, he single one of these He has a cameo in head. Yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, he has yeah. a cameo in head. Not a big role. He's like, no, they're really but quick. He's a star of like most of these films. He directed one of them in the set. And yeah, uh, well, King of Marvin Gardens is one. Well, King of Marvin Gardens, I think, is like one of those. I had never seen it until this set. And it's yeah. a. It's a masterpiece, like I think. It, it's it's great. great. And of course, Easy Rider might be like the the one everybody knows. And the last about, picture show the, maybe might be the other yeah. one. Yeah. And the last picture show, yes. Um but yeah. the five easy pieces is amazing. Uh I haven't seen just two of them in there. I haven't seen it. One of them is Drive, he said that uh is the Nicholson one, and there's another one on there. Apparently Orson Welles is in at playing a street magician. So um really? <laughs> just to see wow. that one. Yeah, Orson Welles is the reason that Peter Bogdanovich shot the last picture show in black and white. Oh, that's cool. That's neat. Because Bogdanovich was struggling. He's like, How do I shoot this movie? You know, I'm trying to get this mood, I'm trying to get this tone, and I'm looking at the sets and everything, and I found this town I think is going to be perfect. And Orson Welles says, well, of course you're going to shoot it in black and white. <laughs> and Bogdanovich said, oh, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. I think I will shoot it in black and white. Oh. Any um, any uh, of the box sets that you have your eye on, Trey, or that you want to talk about? Um, no, I think David mentioned the Showa era Godzilla is the one. That's pretty much the only one I have right now. I just picked up recently, but... Uh, that's an amazing set for any Godzilla fans. And, you know, I'm much more of a Heisei era Godzilla fan. That's what I grew up with. But and I would be great if they, you know, put out a set of that as well, because those are kind of hard to find and scattered out pretty much only on DVD. But, um, yeah, that's a really cool one. And it comes in a really cool book with a lot of artwork on it. So definitely recommend that one if you can fork out the cash for it. Yeah, no, definitely. Yep. And I think the other one that I really think is... um 
uh, I just got, and I haven't had a chance to look into it all, but is the essential Fellini, which has 14 of Fellini's movies. Nice. And it's just like that Bergman one. It's kind of the big, uh, a big one. It's really cool though. I, it, it's weird because at first I'm like, where am I going to put this? Cause it almost looks like an album. <laughs> like it has that look. Right. And then, uh, they've got a big book that has all the, the discs inside of it. And then there are, uh, but what's cool is there are a couple of books, uh, hardbound books, um, that, uh, and one of them is Fellini, his own commentary on the films that's written. Oh, and... see that. Yeah. That, that would be what the reason I want yeah. to pick it up. I think I own all pretty much all of the movies individually. Okay. And the other thing I know, I see, I only owned Roma, um, which actually I uh, will get to that in a minute, but I only owned Roma pre- prior to this one. And the, in the, in the, uh, collection i think there's something like 11 of them are new transfers so there there is that oh, nice. so um i'm guessing amrecord is there and eight and a half and yeah all um, the means uh, yeah. uh julia the spirits and uh julia the spirits, right now uh, and the ship sails on yeah, la strada yeah. intermezzo nice um, yeah really all all of the major ones in fact even the i uh it, fellini did a, a segment of the horror film spirits of the dead it was like a anthology his right. segment to- yeah. toby dammit is actually in the box set um wow that they've taken and put it in its own but there's a lot of great stuff there and um a lot tons tons of special features so i'm really looking forward to digging into it and if i can get my wife to watch them with me i will we'll see how well that That's goes great. probably start with something simple like uh la strada or something like that right? yeah you gotta yeah. start with the earlier yeah like like when when he was still doing the neo realist, right? We can't jump right into like all the like bosomy women. And no, yeah, yeah, right yeah, you know, bat. you show her satiricon, and that's that's game over. Yeah, it is game over. You're absolutely right. Yes, um, uh, the Jacques Demi collection is real. I think that's a little more up her alley. That's really cool too. Um, which are um, a lot of them are musicals and very vibrantly shot musicals. So uh, we just watched some nice. umbrellas. Uh, over Cherbourg, Umbrellas of Sherberg. I and I don't have that on Criterion. I have that on. I think just regular DVD. Yeah, really, really good movie. Really interesting. It is. It's like a fun musical. It's like sort of a cool little musical where they only speak in in musical. Like they don't ever right, talk. Exactly. <laughs> they they sing everything they say, which is a, a little different than what you're expecting. But right. um, yeah, there's tons of ones out there. Ton, tons of different and, stats. And then if we're talking Criterion, um, John Luca Dar made a musical. What is it? A woman is a woman. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. And that's kind of a musical as well. Yep, it sure is. Um, and then to say nothing of all the Eclipse series, you know that they, they oh have, yeah, um, there, there's so many great things like the first films of Samuel Fuller. Yes. Uh, pro, pro, oh God, there's one of them that has uh, Vincent Price in it. What is that? The Baron of Arizona. Yep. Yep. Which has Vincent Price in it, and you have like um, uh, Fast Binders films. You have Silent uh, Yes Is Your Oju movies. Yeah, uh, Robert Downey Sr. Yep, yeah. There's an Eclipse series of of Robert, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s father, who who was a filmmaker, and you have all these, you know, I think Putney Swope is probably his most famous, but he has a lot of movies. There's like five movies on that set in the Eclipse yeah. series. And they even get into like a horror. What is that? The Shakaju. Yes, when horror when horror came to Shichiku. when horror came to Shakaju from the Jap- the Japanese um, horror film. One yeah. of the the screenshots I sent you tonight, guys, is from that film, The X from Outer Space. <laughs> that's the one we were watching, nice. which is on that set, yes, right? Yeah, the X from Outer Space, Goki Body Snatcher from Hell, which I've seen, which is great. The Living Skeleton, which is great, and then one called Genocide, uh, which I have not seen, but involves. Uh, Japan being attacked by bugs that I think the U.S. sent 
<laughs> so I'm curious to see how that goes over. But um, it, it, it there's it's like directors, you know. I think Chantel Ackerman's um, uh, she has a uh, one of the Eclipse series, yes. and I saw one Letters from Home. I think it was called where it's a documentary of her just walking around New York city in the early seventies. That's interesting. Shooting different things. And every now and again, she would interrupt with a letter from home from her mother, <laughs> sort of begging her to come home. That's very interesting. It, it is. It's a fascinating movie. I think I saw that maybe a couple years ago. Chantal Ackerman is a filmmaker. I have to delve into a lot of her um, yeah. uh, stuff. This was might have been my introduction to Chantel Ackerman, but from that alone, it has me interested to check out a lot of her other work. And she has a lot of things in the Criterion Collection. She does. Another another one's got a big box set is um, Agnes Varda has who is who's married to Jacques uh, Demi has a huge box set out there of all her. I, and let me tell you, Vagabond is my number one movie. I want to say from eighty five or eighty six. Yeah, I can't remember film. what year it came out with. But that is my favorite movie of that year was Vagabond. And I think that's Agnes Varda. It is, yep. And that's and that's a Criterion Collection film. It it, it takes what they did with um what uh, Christopher Nolan did with um uh what was it, Memento. It tells it from end to beginning. Yep. It starts at the end with the death of its main character and then carries it forward. To show how she got to where she was. Oh yeah, very very cool stuff. Um, it really is. It's a great movie, and 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 she's got a lot of films you could there. You can buy them individually, um, which might be uh, the way to go. The other thing I want to say. Um, oh, and also Wong Kar Wai collection, which I don't have yet. Yeah, um, I wanted to get, but like, people keep telling me that the box is weird. Like the box is not really that great. The packaging. Well, I, I mean, for me, I have Chunking Express for me is his masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. And see, I really like. I in absolutely the mood for love, love Chunking, and In yeah. the Mood for Love is a close second. Yeah. In the Mood for Love is a great movie, but for me, Chunking Express is just. It's in my top fifteen films of all time. I agree. It's it's a, it, it's a great film, and um, I'm not sure which is my favorite. It's probably one of those two. But I, you know, and I've held off because yeah, those are the ones I really I like most of his work that he's done. Um, but mm -hmm. I, you know, I I think I own both of those already, so I'm, I've been hesitant to just pick up the box set. But that's yeah. out there. Um, anything else that you guys wanted to mention? Movies? Um, no, I th I, th I think we've. I think, I think we've so. covered them all. You know, we're getting into the Eclipse series and um, just uh, Criterion in general. Yeah, I I think you can't go wrong if if you want to delve into it. And one other one I would throw out would be Andrei Rublev. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and honestly, I think Tarkovsky, even though he kind of he can be challenging to get into, I'll almost and he doesn't have that many films that are in the Criterion. It's about four or five. No, it's Solaris, um, Andre Rublev, Ivan's Childhood, yeah. and uh, Stalker, Stalker, and Stalker, Stalker and right. Mirror. Mirror yeah. was just added. Um, Stalker, I oh really? Because I have Mirror on DVD. I don't have yeah, the Criterion. Just released it like back at last during the last sale. Um, I picked oh, it wow. up. So Mirror is very cool. I think that, and it's very. Um, kind of really looking at his childhood and growing up and stuff like that. But Solaris is a classic, but to me, Stalker is the one I think I love the most. Um, Stalker, Stalker's great. And Solaris is, is damn good as well. I mean, I yes. love that. I love Solaris, but I'm just, I've always been partial to Andre. Rublev. It's the most, um, 
it's the it's the biggest achievement i think yeah uh, what I he achieves so. in that film is amazing and it's probably the difference of me as a science fiction fan just what they did with stalker sort of so amazing although what they mm-hmm. did with stalker going into areas that were actually irradiated that they didn't know at the time uh right. i think were partly what contributed to tarkovsky's eventual death unfortunately right he, he died very yeah, young unfortunately. Um, and i think yeah. actually i think one of the cursed films i think talks about that in relation to stalker oh, wow. um, on, on shutter so the uh but yeah he, his films are any of the ones from the criterion are really the really good i think that uh rubleb is yeah that's that's probably the crown jewel uh, personal favorite being stalker yeah but. it just the setting he he manages to somehow capture that setting of you know the 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 basically the time war the tartars and yeah. um the, their invasion of europe it's that same thing we're talking about with the marquette lazarova where you capture this medievalism that is very hard yep. to uh replicate in a world where we are used to things like you know running water and not dying of you know uh Oh, a leg wound. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. And and real quick, I just want to say that I, I'm kicking myself because I didn't make one of my six movies. One that I saw within the last couple of years and blew me away was Come and See. Yeah, that's a good movie. A uh, hard movie. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's devastating. Yeah. It's not one you're going to return to every year. Um, I know what I wanted to, to mention is... Um, and Trey, did you have any other titles or anything uh, you wanted to mention? No, no, I think I'm about good. Like I said, I don't have hardly as many as <laughs> as you two do. So I think I mentioned the ones I wanted to talk about for now, at least. We are talking here, obviously, you know, the idea is to talk about films that uh, physical media. But I want to mention uh, because, you know, it is kind of pricey to plunk down money to get the Criterion movies. Uh, and you don't always want to do that on a blind watch or blind buy right. where you haven't watched it before. And a good way, unfortunately, though, a lot of the Criterion movies, this is the one place to find them. Uh, what I will say I've found is an awesome resource is the Criterion channel. You can get, uh, it's, nice. that doesn't cost very much to get a subscription to it. And it's actually very cool. Uh, I also will mention, I know Trey knows this as well. Now, HBO Max, if you have HBO Max, they do put a lot of, cri- through the TCM tab they put mm-hmm. a lot of Criterion movies there's a lot of them up there right now but the Criterion nice. channel is cool because it's curated uh, it brings movies in and out a lot of the Criterion channel movies there and also Criterion movies that they have uh, a hold of but they haven't yet uh, maybe haven't put out in an actual set yet sometimes are there as well a lot of the Eclipse movies are there I didn't even know where they came from you know I was like oh wow. uh, that's how we were watching the X from Outer Space is they were right there on the Criterion channel and they will They'll also pair them up. They'll have like a matinee uh, segment where you can go and watch two movies together, like the two Mexican horror films we were just talking about have, are, are paired together there. Definitely worth your time. And here's the thing about it. When like, so if Andre Rublev is on Criterion channel, so are all its special features. Yeah, and that's the best That's part. what's really yeah. neat. So if you want to, yeah. well, the, the best use of that is as for a test run. So I'll see some of these movies. I saw the Umbrellas of, of Sherborg and thought, you know what? That's a movie I'd like to own, you know, something like that. So so I think that uh, that wraps it up um, for this. Again, this was just sort of a test and it was our typical um, marathon of, 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 of mentioning uh, different titles. But the actual show 
Uh, we still we're still looking for a title. Maybe we'll put it out there on the on the Facebook page of Phantom Galaxy. Any suggestions uh, for a title for our podcast, which is dedicated to home media, to 4Ks, Blu-rays, DVDs, I guess VHS. If you got any, you want to, if you can send me a, a new VHS player and v, VHSs, I'll be happy to take a look at them. But uh, we we look forward to your feedback. Uh, please go over and review Phantom Galaxy uh, at Apple Podcasts uh, with for five star reviews. We will be uh, having. Uh, I've got. Some, I have some Criterion films, uh, one or two that I would like to give away um, as we build up uh, this show. So when we go to the actual first episode of the show itself, I will have some giveaways for some some Blu-rays and some DVDs. Um, for next time so stay tuned for that and we'll kind of uh, do a proper kickoff for it and uh, we'll see what the feedback is like to this but uh, i will put a post up on the facebook after this episode releases it's a lot of fun i oh, i have more yeah. titles to add to my list yeah. which is it's always awesome i hope all of you do too. too and yep. uh yeah okay that wraps up our episode i wanted to thank dave and trey for joining we didn't have an opportunity to uh, let them share their their links where you can find them, but you can find all those links in the show notes. You can find Trey over at Screaming Through the Ages, his horror podcast over there. You can find Dave a lot of different places, uh, including, of course, HMP, Horror Movie Podcast, and you can find him at Land of the Creeps. You can also find him at Jay of the Dead's New Horror Movies. Now, he's one of several hosts over there. You can also find him at dvdinfatuation.com, where he posts reviews on a regular basis. You can also find his DVD Infatuation podcast as part of Considering the Cinema. I'll have all the links in the show notes. And then finally, I want to mention that we have chosen a name for this podcast. Going forward, this will be the Phantom Video Podcast. And it eventually will have its own separate feed, but for now we're going to run it through Phantom Galaxy. And if you uh, really enjoyed this episode, please let us know if you'd be interested in hearing this as a regular feature where we would delve into reviews of specific films, physical media. We also plan to have discussions on uh, film topics and, and different genres and things like that where we might uh, offer up our recommendations for several movies. So if you enjoyed that, let us know what your thoughts are. Any ideas you might have for the podcast, love to hear them. You can send email at phantomcast@gmail.com. You can head over to Phantom Galaxy Facebook group, join there, and let us know what you think. I'll put up some uh, some some links and some. Um, I'll put up a post where we can discuss this. And any ideas you have uh, are welcome. You can also find me on Twitter at Phantom Galaxy. And this is Nathan Bartleball signing out. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at AriesBeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.